0: At 1 p.m., Diane will host a discussion of The Long Pedal of the Sea, a novel by Isabel Allende. Plus, Diane will have a special conversation with the author following the book club event. Register for one or both events at WAMU.org slash events. Hey, I had a great Black History Month. I hope you did, too. That's, all that, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James, and I'll see you next month. This is WAMU Washington. NHD at 88.5 at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, 43 degrees in Bethesda, 45 in Manassas, 45 in Fort Washington at 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight we close out African American History Month with a visit from Jackie Robinson, Louis Armstrong on Bing Crosby's Philco Radio Time, and a devastating 1949 report from Destination Freedom on racial segregation in Washington, D.C., plus Gunsmoke. Dragnet, The New Adventures of Michael Shane, and two stories from the masterful Ben Hecht, one from Peter Laurie's series Mystery in the Air, and another from Suspense, starring Frederick March and Ben Hecht himself. So breathe in, breathe out, forget about any troubles from last week, and postpone worrying about the week to come. It's time to relax and get your imagination going here on your Sunday Night Oasis The Big Broadcast. As you sometimes hear on our show, whenever the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service broadcast commercial network programs, they'd remove the commercials and put in little features meant to educate and inspire our troops stationed around the world. One of them may have particular interest to us today, as it appeared in the Back to the Back Matter Originally broadcast by CBS on July seventeenth, 1960, then rebroadcast by AFRTS as part of the series, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny
1: Dollar. Ed Continental Insurance and Trust. Well, nice to hear from you, Ed. It's been a long time since Johnny, you've been calling. Johnny, listen. Me. Yeah? I've already telephoned the airport, made a reservation. Well, good for you. Have a happy trip. No, Johnny. No, that reservation's for you. It's on the next flight down to New York. For me? What for? So hop into your car and get on out to the airport just as fast as you can. You've only got a few minutes to make that Whoa, point. hold on. Wait a minute. I'll meet you there at Bradley Field, give you the address of the man in New York and all the details. Yeah, what man? His name is Lucian Ar- Look, Johnny, there isn't time. Get on out there to the airport. Well, yeah, you
2: look, unless I know why you want me to get down and see this Lucian, whatever his name is, well...
1: Sure, I'll tell you why. Well? Johnny, it's to prevent a murder.
3: Uh
2: CBS Radio brings you Bob Bailey In the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator Yours truly,
1: Johnny Dollar Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Continental Insurance and Trust Company Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the back-to-the-back matter.
2: The gas tank of my car was dry as a bone, so expense account item one is 5 30 to fill it up. Then I tore on out to Bradley Field, and sure enough, Ed
1: Berenger was waiting for me. Over here, Johnny. Oh, yeah. Is this plane over here? Hi, Ed. How are you? Here now. Here's your ticket. Okay. And here's Mr. Fletcher's address down in New York. Fletcher? Lucian R. Fletcher, head of the Fletcher Advertising Agency. Oh, wants to buy some commercial time on my radio show? No. Well, he
2: better talk to the folks at CBS. No, Johnny. Listen. Oh, yeah,
1: that's right. You mentioned that nasty word, murder. He phoned me just before I called you. That, uh, that agency of his is a small one, but prosperous. Up until a couple of years ago, when he took on a partner, it was practically a one-man operation saw. So, this partner's name is William Spade, Bill Spade. And what Fletcher called about was to tell me that Spade is out to murder him. Why? To get his hands in the advertising agency. What else? So jump onto that... No, now, no, wait, 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 wait. A... If Fletcher knows this, if he's sure of it... He's sure of it, all right. So, Johnny... Well, look, then why doesn't he call in the police? Have this guy, Spade, locked up? Spade is out of town on some business down in Philadelphia. But he's due back sometime today. There in New York, are Now, Ed, look, Johnny, I... old man Fletcher isn't the kind to go off half cocked, to come up with a false alarm. So go on down there, find out exactly what's up, do whatever's necessary to nail down his partner, and... Well, go on, Johnny. Your plane's about ready for takeoff. Okay, okay. As you're paying the prey. But now listen, Johnny, you haven't any time. Oh, I'll make it all right. Relax. Listen, as soon as we take off,
2: you telephone Lieutenant Randy Singer. Sure, eh? sure, the sure. New Police Department, 18th Precinct, Homicide Division.
1: Yeah, okay. Tell him what you just told me, and then I'm on my way. Sure, sure. Now get aboard before you're too late. Sure. <laughs> Item two on the expense
2: account is, uh, well, no, the ticket for the flight was already paid for, and of course, I'd
1: hate to be accused of padding the old expense account. Why should I say getting caught? So, item two is a dime for a phone call as soon as I landed there in New York. And not to Mr. Fletcher's address at 614 East 52nd Street. 18th
4: Precinct, Conroy. Yeah,
1: Conroy, this is Johnny Dollar. Let me talk to Lieutenant Singer.
4: Oh, hiya, Dollar. How's the private eye business these days? Special
2: investigator
5: to you, copper.
2: <laughs> Don't like being called a private eye, huh?
5: What's your guess?
2: And listen, us cops don't like being called cops
5: anymore. Yeah,
1: so I've heard. But haven't you heard, Conroy, that a rose by any other name?
6: Now, what's
7: that mean?
1: Well, you figure that one out. Now, would you switch me over to Eddie Singer?
7: Great, I can't do that. What? Lieutenant pulled out of here about 20 minutes ago in on one of the squad cars. Oh. Uh, Big
4: emergency or something like, aren't they all? But uh, he'll be back. Well, look, do you know
1: if he got a call from up in Hartford, Connecticut, a while ago?
4: Uh, not that I know of. I only come on duty about half an hour ago. Okay. But I know he made a lot of frantic phone calls before he took off, if that means anything. Well,
1: does it?
7: Also, he took the medical along with him.
1: Ah. Well, listen, Conroy, when he comes in, tell him I'll be over
2: at
7: 614 East 52nd Street. 614? At the apartment of a Mr. Lucian R. Fletcher. Now, Dollar, you... Tell him if he can make it, I want to see him over there. 614
1: East 52nd. Yeah, that's 63. right. Now, listen. Gotta go now. Item three is 640 for a taxi at the six fourteen. For some silly reason or other, the doorman at that snooty address hesitated about steering me up to Mister Fletcher's apartment. That is until I
2: flashed my credentials at him and mumbled the magic word "emergency." Then I took the elevator up to the
3: ninth floor. Come in, Johnny.
1: Come on in. Come on. Conroy Roy, me. You're on your way over here. How are you, boy? Randy. Oh, and Ed Behrens here up in Hartford did call you. Yeah, that's right. So I came on over here to see Mr. Fletcher, find out what all the excitement was about. Well, what'd you find out? Now, why don't you just come on into the library and see for yourself? Sure, sure. Well, if you, you ask me, Randy, see... Huh? Yeah. This is Mr. Fletcher?
8: That's Mr. Fletcher. Dead. That's right, Johnny.
5: There is a door.
9: Who'd you vote for in the last general election? You may not realize it, but you voted for someone you probably never heard of and whose name may not have appeared on your ballot. And who was this stranger? He was the elector appointed by your state to decide who was to be our president. Every state has as many electors as it has representatives and senators in Congress combined. Collectively, they're called the Electoral College. And it's the members of the Electoral College alone who can vote for the president of the United States. Your vote was cast for the group of electors that pledged itself to vote for either the Democratic or Republican nominee. But you... Did not vote directly for either candidate. A roundabout way of doing things? Yes. But you must remember that when the Constitution was written, there was no television, no radio, and few newspapers. The majority of voters had never traveled more than a few miles from their own homes. In these circumstances, it was impossible for a voter in Maine to know about the great public figures of New York or Pennsylvania, Virginia, or South Carolina. There were not even any political parties to guide him. And so the voter in Maine didn't try to do the impossible. He voted for someone who did know the great men of the times and who could render an intelligent decision as to which one of them should make the best president. The system has its faults. Three times in our history, the man who got the most votes from the people was not elected president because he did not get the most votes in the electoral college. Yet no one today seriously proposes to abolish the Electoral College. Because by and large, the people believe that in spite of its drawbacks, the present system of electing our president ensures that your country and mine shall be our country. Under God. And now, Act Two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
1: Somebody came in here and
2: finished him off with just exactly one nice clean shot through the heart Uh Uh-huh Any sign
5: of a struggle, Randy? Anything like that?
2: No, sir So it must have been somebody that he knew that let him in here himself Well, I'll buy that all right And it kind
1: of proves the old man was right in his fears after all Huh? When, Randy? Any idea when Mr. Fletcher was murdered? Well, I got that call from your insurance agent up in Hartford early this morning. I tried calling Mr. Fletcher at his office, but uh, he told
2: me he hadn't come in yet. Yeah? So I tried calling him here.
4: No answer.
10: So I grabbed Doc Snyder and he was sure that Fletcher hadn't left the place. Well, I borrowed the key and the doc and I came up here.
2: Randy, you haven't answered my question.
10: Oh, according to the doc, it happened sometime very early this morning, uh, right after midnight. Uh Uh-huh. I see. Doc and a couple of boys from the lab just left. Did they find anything, Randy? Any clues? Not a thing to work on. All they know is that he was shot through the heart and what he was shot with. And believe me, Johnny, that bullet was placed just exactly right. Well, now,
2: what do you mean by that?
1: Well, just take a good look right there.
2: Well, now, what under the sun is that? Some kind of a bulletproof vest?
5: Yeah, that's what I thought until Doc Snyder looked at it. No, Johnny, it's a, it's a kind of a corset. Corset? Yeah, that's right, a, a kind of a back support that was made for him especially. Uh, on account of some kind of sacred, I mean, uh, sacro
2: lumbar trouble or something. Oh, yeah, sacro lumbar support. Yeah, it's a... I've never seen one quite like this. This thing's almost like a suit of armor. Sure. That's why I say it was a lucky shot. Uh-huh. I, I mean, the shot had to be placed exactly right. Inch or two on either side, and... One of those wide steel ribs would have bounced it off, yeah. or at least kept it from going straight into his heart.
1: Oh, oh, now, wait a minute. A 38 slug
2: pack's a lot of wallop. The... Yeah, only this was a little 22 uh, Now, listen. Yeah?
8: That insurance man, the one who called and said you were coming on down here? Ed Beringer Yeah.
2: Well, he told me that Fletcher'd been expecting something like this.
8: That's right, man. Yeah,
2: he said that Fletcher made no bones about who might try. That's right. The one man who might stand to benefit from his insurance... somehow we have to find
1: him. Now, who's that? Randy, in his advertising business, he had a partner. Uh Oh. And it seems this partner, a man named William Spade... (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. That's probably the boys with the meat wagon. Come on to pick him up. Okay, I'll let him in.
2: Okay, boys, you can come.
5: Hi. Huh? I beg your pardon? Who are you? Why, my name's Spade, Bill Spade. I'm Mr. Fletcher's partner. What's that? So you're Bill Spade, huh? Yes. Well, my name is Dollar, Johnny Dollar. The insurance investigator? That's right. And is that a policeman I see in there in the library? Mr. Dollar, is something wrong here? Where have you been, Mr. Spade? Why, I just got in from Philadelphia. I was down there on some important agency business. Just got out back, huh? When? Well, my plane got in about uh, half an hour ago, maybe 45 minutes. Well, here. Here's my ticket. You can check on it. Yeah, maybe I will.
9: Where did you stay
5: in Philadelphia? Uh, At the Bellevue Stratford. But why? What's wrong around here? Where is Mr. Fletcher? Just take it easy, Mr. Spade. But I've got to see him on a business matter. You do, huh? Yes, it's very important, about a new client of ours. It has to be acted on at once. Well, I'm afraid it's going to have to wait. I called the office from the airport, and they said he wasn't in yet, so I came on over here. Now, where is he, and what's this all about, Mr. Dollar? So, you claim you were down in Philadelphia when your business partner was shot. That's right, I was... Shot? Mr. Fletcher was shot? Real surprised. Where man. is he? Let me see. Him. I said take it easy. But good heavens, hey, Mr. Take Dollar. Take it easy. Pieces. And if this business matter is so all fired important, well, hadn't you better be down at the office taking care of it? Now,
3: Johnny.
5: Well, Mr. Spade? Oh, yes, of course. Of course I should. Sure, sure you
2: should. So uh, why don't you just run along? No, huh? wait. After all, Mr. Fletcher's in no condition
5: to run your ad agency. That's the understatement I, of all I time. I can't right. believe it. Mr. Fletcher... Did. Oh, you can't, huh? This is terrible. Uh, have you any idea who could have done this to him? Are you kidding? What do you mean? All right, now, Yeah, Mr.
1: Spade, you'd better get on down to that office of yours. Huh? And as soon as we can tell you anything, we will get in touch. Uh, believe Johnny, me, no, no, believe
5: wait. me, if no. there's anything I can do, please call him. Oh,
2: just don't you worry about that. But get on down to the office and take over. No way, right ahead, me, Mr. No Spade, way. I'll be in touch with you. Very well, Mr. Dollar. Now, what are you... <laughs> Uh, What's got into you, Johnny? You're the one just got through telling me he's the one that must have killed Mr. Fletcher. So how are you going to prove it? Well, we got no other suspect, have we? Uh, And you let him go. Look here, this plane ticket. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. I saw him shove it into your hand. I knew that Spade was supposed to be in Philly, that he was due to come back here today, so when I pulled into the airport, I carefully checked the incoming flight schedule. (laughs) So what? Oh, this flight was due in all right, and from Philadelphia. Just what he said, half or three-quarters of an hour ago. Yeah, all right, all right. So what? That doesn't prove he was actually on that flight. Randy, I think he was. That ticket could have been used by somebody else. Well, it's easy enough to check on, but I doubt it very much. All right, but if you're right about that, if he was down there in Philly, then your first theory about him is all wrong. How could he have murdered Mr. Fletcher? Sounds impossible, doesn't it? Of course, it is. Want to bet? Account item four, ten cents for a call to the Fletcher advertising agency.
3: No, sir. Mr. Spade isn't in yet. All
1: right, then, miss. He
3: telephoned that he would stop
1: off and see Mr. Fletcher before coming
11: in at Mr. Fletcher's apartment.
1: And he called you from the airport, didn't he? Yes, sir. And, uh, probably left the door of the phone booth open so you could hear the background noise of the planes and so on. What? Sure. So you know he actually was calling from the airport. Item five, sixty cents for half a dozen calls
2: to various departments of the airline company. And finally, I managed to get hold of the gal who'd been stewardess on
12: the flight in from Philadelphia.
13: Yes, uh, kind of light sandy hair
11: and blue eyes. Uh-huh. And he wore a uh, dark brown tweed suit. Oh, and his briefcase had the initials W.S. on it. Yeah,
3: then it must
2: have been Bill Spade, all right. But uh, how come you remembered him so well out of your whole list
5: of passengers? Oh,
14: could I forget him? What do you mean by that? Oh, Mr. Dollar,
11: from takeoff to landing, that whole flight was perfect. But Mr. William Spade insisted he was airsick, or on the verge of it. Uh He must have pushed the call button a dozen times. Mary and I were busier with him than with all the other passengers put together. I see. Mary swore he was perfectly all right. That didn't keep him from pushing that button.
1: Yeah, almost as though he was deliberately calling attention to himself.
11: Yes. Certainly looked that way, but why?
1: I think I have a pretty good idea. Thanks a lot.
7: Spade told me he'd stayed over in Philadelphia at the Bellevue Stratford. Item six is a dollar thirty for a call
4: down there. Oh, that's right, sir. Uh, Mister Spade got his key from me and went up to his room at about oh, ten o'clock last night. Uh, you
1: mean he said he was going to his room?
4: That's right. Then he checked out about uh, 8 o'clock this morning. I see. If it uh, means anything, he mentioned the importance of catching a plane to New York. He mentioned it several times to both me and the cashier. I'm sure he did. All uh, Almost like a kid about to take his first airplane ride.
1: Oh, maybe it was just to impress you with the time he left
2: your hotel.
4: Oh? Well, what do you mean by that, sir?
1: Nothing. Forget it. Thanks. <laughs> The minute Spade handed me that
2: plane ticket as an alibi, I felt sure he had murdered Mr. Fletcher. As for all his trouble to establish, he'd been in Philadelphia that morning, then aboard the plane, then at the airport. Well, all very clever. But where was he? What was he doing before he checked under the Bellevue? And don't forget, it's only a short hop from Philly to New York. Oh, I knew what Spade's answer would be that he was in his hotel room asleep. And I'm sure that no one could prove otherwise. No one, that is, except Spade himself, could prove he left that hotel during
1: the night. Gone to New York under another name, killed his partner, then got back in plenty of time to check out of the Bellevue at 8 a.m. So unless I could somehow,
10: somehow
2: trick him. Item seven eighty-five cents for a cab to his office.
5: Yes, come in, Mr. Dollar, and sit down. Ah, all right, thanks. I'm sorry for the appearance of my desk. But with all that's happened and with the affairs of my new client to take care of. Your new client? Well, after all, with Mr. Fletcher gone.
2: Hmm. Hey, looks to me like you have every newspaper in town piled up here. But they wouldn't write about Mr. Fletcher unless you were dead or murdered.
5: But Tell me, how did you and Fletcher get along? I suppose I might have expected you to ask something like that, just as a matter of routine questioning. Your questioning of anyone who knew him. Maybe. But what did you mean by saying the papers would only print a story if he were dead? Just let me ask the question, sir. Well, of course. Well? Mr. Fletcher and I ran this business together. Personally, how'd you get along? He was a very difficult person, Mr. Dollar. Created many embarrassing situations here in the office. Embarrassing for you? Yes. But I blame it all on the constant pain from his back. You see, he had a very serious condition. Sacral lumbar. Yes, I know, I know that. But I had to admire and respect him. He was a genius. Now, just look at the way he built up this agency. Yeah. Be nice to have, wouldn't it? Especially by you. In other words, you had plenty of motive for killing him. Yes, of course. But if you think for one minute... And I'm I... sure you had no trouble getting hold of a key to his apartment. Mr. Dollar... Who knows? Maybe Mr. Fletcher gave you one. After all, his own partner... Dollar, if this it? is an attempt to be facetious. Look here, it's bad enough that Mr. Fletcher is dead.
2: Now, that's the second
5: time you've said that. Said what? That Fletcher is dead. Well, of course I What? Did I say that he was? Or the lieutenant there at the apartment? You said he was shot. He, he
2: must be dead. You mentioned his back trouble. Look here now. Is I myself saw that corset he was wearing those wide, heavy stays made of steel. You being... Why, it would bounce off it like hail off a roof. Now oh, a big gun, a thirty eight. But you forgot all about that regular suit of armor he had around him.
5: But he fell. I saw him. I saw him fall. Sure you did. And I thought the bullet... But if I didn't kill him, I was sure I had. I'd aim for his heart. And when he fell, when he... Oh. Yeah.
1: Oh, no. Fletcher is dead. And now that you've told
2: me
5: who did it... Dollar, please. Listen. You, uh... Mind if I use your phone?
1: Ah, It's funny how a man like that can plan a thing so carefully. Carry it out so carefully. And then when he's caught, lose his head
2: and blab all over the place. Yeah. Spade even made a grab for the little twenty-two pistol he'd used and had right there in his desk. Well, it'll be good as evidence. Expense account total including a good meal on the fair back to dear old Hartford. Hmm.
1: 2580. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
2: starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Gene Tatum, Frank Gerstle, James McCallion, Herb Bygren, Jack Edwards, and Forrest Lewis. Be sure to join us next week same time and station for another exciting story of Yours
10: Truly, Johnny Dollar. This is John Wall speaking. Johnny
2: Dollar has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio
1: and Television Service.
0: Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. The -the back-to-the-back matter. An episode from Midsummer 1960 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. No figure in American history has been a bigger Touchstone for the story of African-American struggle and success than Jackie Robinson. Not only does that qualify him for endless tributes during every African-American history month, but this particular week also marks a special anniversary in the story of the man who reintegrated Major League Baseball after more than 60 years of its self-enforced race discrimination. Most of us think of April fifteenth, 1947, as the date of that historic achievement, and indeed, that's when Mr. Robinson started at first base in his first game for the Brooklyn Dodgers. But the team had actually signed him in the fall of 1945, and they'd assigned him to their minor league affiliate, the Montreal Royals. Well, this coming Saturday, March 6th, will mark exactly 75 years since Jackie Robinson played his first game in previously all-white professional baseball in a spring training contest between his Royals and the B-Squad of the Brooklyn Big League Club. He went over 2 in a 4-2 loss, as you can see in an Associated Press report on our Facebook page. Not long after his Hall of Fame baseball career ended, Mr. Robinson hosted a series of very short radio programs, Jackie Robinson's Radio Shots, syndicated for stations to use as a filler into which they could drop a local commercial. Each show featured its famous host in conversation with another celebrity, usually someone with a connection to the world of sports. As, for example, the columnist and TV host Ed Sullivan whom we're about to hear. Mr. Robinson refers to two ball players: Ted Williams of the Red Sox and Ewell Blackwell of my beloved Cincinnati Reds. It's hard to know the exact date of these little broadcasts, but it's certain that they were done around 1959 or 60. Syndicated by RCA at that time, and with his guest, Ed Sullivan, it's one of Jackie Robinson's radio shots.
15: Today my guest will be Ed Sullivan television's most popular M.C. Ed and I have known each other since the days when I first sported a Dodger uniform, and that goes back quite a bit. I'll bring on my popular guest, Ed Sullivan, right after this important message. Well, Ed, uh, I've known you for a long time, and I've certainly appreciated your warm, uh, sincere friendship, and, but I think this is the first time, actually, that you and I have ever
16: sat down before a mic to discuss whatever we have on our minds. Well, it's high time we got together, Jackie, and as a former sports writer, you know, there have always been some questions I'd, I'd like answered by you, and I've never seen the answers to them, so if you'll indulge me, I'd like to ask you some questions. Oh. Jackie, now, you were always a terrific hitter and a great clutch player. Could you give me the name, is, is this possible, to name one National League pitcher who down through the years in the National League gave you the most trouble? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Fuel Blackwell from Cincinnati. Is that so?
15: Oh, Ed, this is a fellow that, well, he reminded uh, me and I imagine most right-handed hitters in the National League of a, a man falling out of a tree, trying to uh, get his balance and land on his feet, arms and legs, just dangling and going in all different directions. And then he finally would end up throwing sidearm and he would think he was throwing from third base. And as I say, right-handed hitters felt like they wanted to get out of the box and just let it go. He was really tough. As a, as a great hitter.
16: I know that you and Ted Williams probably were the greatest analysts of baseball that I ever met. Who, in your opinion, was the greatest hitter you ever saw in baseball? <laughs> you named him. Sir? You named him Ted Williams. This Is that how... he's,
15: he's amazing as far as I'm concerned.
16: Jack, you know, I never realized how much I missed being a sports writer uh, until I sat here talking to you <laughs> and having the opportunity to ask the questions that I've always wanted to ask you. It's been so nice to have had this opportunity to... To ask the questions and get such very type of answers i 'd expect from a guy who always showed the same reflexes and and the clutch is on a, on, a, on a diamond.
15: Well, I'll say one thing, and I'll never forget your uh, being a sports writer, because when I broke in the baseball, uh, I remember many of the fine columns that you wrote, uh, one in particular where you asked that the people just recognize Jackie Robinson as a ball player. This, to me, was, uh, in the early days, one of the finest things that I Well, I it's would... just
16: the way I felt, you know. I used to think to myself the, the, the rages you must bottle up in yourself mm-hmm. and the resentment you must bottle up in yourself. And you couldn't express them, while other ball players were free to express them. So when I wrote that column, I was feeling very keenly on the subject. I'm, I'm very flattered you remembered it. That's the nicest compliment you could pay me, Jack. It has been my pleasure having you Bye, on. You give our love home. Thank you, and you do the same. Fine.
0: And that just about does it for now, fans. See you soon. Jackie Robinson's radio shots featuring Ed Sullivan from about 1959. Jackie Robinson started at shortstop for the Brooklyn Dodgers farm team, the Montreal Royals, at Daytona Beach, Florida, 75 years ago this week. Even though he was an owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, it wasn't baseball that made Bing Crosby a superstar. It was radio. And Mr. Crosby returned the favor helping radio by hosting his own very popular network programs on the medium for an astonishing 25-plus years. In most of those series, he exploited one of his greatest strengths as an entertainer, the ability to meld comedy and music seamlessly. We're about to hear a good example from 1949, when his sponsor was the radio, TV, and appliance manufacturer Philco. You'll hear a couple of their commercials, mostly plugging their combination radio phonographs at a time when long playing records and FM radio, on which I'm broadcasting right now, were very fresh innovations. There are jokes about the laundry detergent, does, the supporting actor in Mr. Crosby's most famous movies, Barry Fitzgerald, and a very hip reference to $18.75. That was the price of a U.S. savings bond that would mature to $25 after 10 years. A friend recently sent me an article from the show business publication Variety that said the actor Michelle Williams has been signed for the director Todd Haynes' new biopic of the singer, actor, and songwriter Peggy Lee. Variety reported that another current star, the singer Billie Eilish, is in discussions to join the film as an executive producer. Well, you'll hear Ms. Lee in this broadcast, handling comedy and music along with Bing Crosby. Also on hand is Mr. Crosby's frequent collaborator, the trumpeter, Louis Armstrong. He appears with fellow jazz musicians Jack Teagarden on trombone and the violinist Joe Venuti. Some of the lyrics, as, for example, Johnny Mercer's Lazy Bones, are written in what would have been called dialect back then, But as we close out African American History Month, it's worth noting that just having black and white people playing and singing together was a social statement in 1949. Such racially integrated appearances had been rare even 10 and 15 years earlier. There's a reference to Louis Armstrong's portrait on the cover of Time magazine. We've got it posted on our Facebook page. And I think it's worth noting that it was Peggy Lee who sang the Lord's Prayer at Mr. Armstrong's funeral in 1971. So now, from the eve of St. Patrick's Day in 1949 and from the ABC network, it's Bing Crosby's Philco Radio Time.
8: When the blue
17: of the night meets the goal of the day Someone away
7: this is Kevin Carpenter, walking you to the the Philco Radio Time, produced and transcribed at the Marine Memorial Theater in San Francisco, with John Scott Trotter and his orchestra and Bing's guests. Peggy Lee, Louis Armstrong, Jack T. Garden, and Joe Venuti. Ken,
8: are you sure all my old buddies are here tonight? Oh, they sure are, Bing.
7: Fine.
8: Now introduce me. Oh, no. Everybody knows you, Bing. Do you realize that to a great segment of our population, Bing Crosby is just a cardboard cutout in a Philco dealer's window?
3: <laughs> and
8: not a very attractive cutout either.
3: <laughs> With <his> hair,
8: though. <laughs> Something. Bad side, a bad angle.
7: <laughs> Say, incidentally, hmm. Bing, I don't know why you made Philco go to all the trouble and the expense of having those cutouts made for the dealer's windows. Why can't you just go around and stand in those windows in person? Think of the money that saved the
8: company. Ken, I haven't appeared in the store windows since the time Jack Teagarden and I were locked out of our room at the Pennsylvania Hotel in New York. And we had to set up light housekeeping in the window of the Penn drugstore. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. you and T-Garden locked out of your room for not paying your bill, huh? No, I wouldn't say that. We were locked out because our room was placed under strict quarantine. Quarantine? Yes, our wallets were suffering from a severe case of beriberi. <laughs> well, Malnutrition, you know. Yes, I
7: know. Why did you sleep in a drugstore window? Didn't Joe Venuti have a room? Oh, no,
8: he used to sleep in his fiddle case on a spaghetti mattress. <laughs> A spaghetti mattress. Which he used to nibble on. <laughs> I'll never believe that. You don't, huh? Why? To this day, if you serve Venuti a bowl of spaghetti, he'll lie down in it.
3: <laughs> how long did you and Tea Garden
8: live in that drugstore window? Oh, we were there for weeks until one day Paul Whiteman came in and picked us up in a one-cent sale. Well, how did Whiteman pick up Joe Venuti? With a knife and fork at Nino and Nella's. <laughs>
7: Yeah, how about Louis Armstrong, Bing? Did Whiteman snag him, too? Oh, no. Louis had a room. What did
8: he need with Whiteman? (laughs) But now, Ken, Miss. (sighs) Miss Peggy Lee approaches. Ah, that's what I call a slick chick. Ken, you're here in San Francisco to do a radio show. You're not here on a convention. (laughs) Any reason why I can't live a little? Please, please. When a pretty girl walks up to the microphone, act like a gentleman, like this. Tell me. Good evening, Miss Lee.
13: Miss Lee? Yes. Oh, not Bing, just because I couldn't have lunch with you, you don't have to give me the ice. It's
8: not that big. It's just that I think we should be more formal on the program. That's why I'm wearing a dinner jacket.
3: <laughs>
14: well, that's not a dinner jacket.
8: I'm going to eat dinner in it. Now, Peg, how about us doing that big duet that we had scheduled for an opening?
18: I am ready. Then what
8: away. John Scott, if you have you-was there on the racks, please drop a downbeat, huh? Get those boys blowing and playing and stroking and swinging.
11: If you were to ask me who the sweetest one I knew was, I'd say you was.
8: This is big news, and I love it. If you were to ask me who my favorite point of view was, I'd say you was.
17: When you're not
3: near, my heart is inclined to waste away.
17: Ah, but when you're here, the funny part is
8: my heart is a spherical, lyrical miracle all the day.
3: If you would ask
17: me who the apple of my eye was,
8: I'd say I was. If you were to ask me who my sweet potato pie was,
17: I'd say I was. And you'd be 100% right.
8: Give this girl 1875. Supposing
17: you paid a visit to a certain preacher.
8: Supposing you overheard me practicing, I do. And you were to ask me who the bride and groom to be was.
17: I'd say we was.
8: Me and. When you're near, it's sort of father. There isn't the a lovelier heaven above your place to be. If I were to ask you who the girl I'd glorify was.
13: I'd say I was.
8: Here now, office, What kind of talk is this here now? If
11: I were to ask you who the bow I'd like to tie was.
8: I'd say I was. Supposing you heard that I was
17: shopping for a truce. We are
8: progressing, supposing I brought you something old and something new, and you were to ask me who the bride and groom to be was, I'd say we was,
3: me and you, you are who was, you was, I was, we was, me and you.
8: it's the nicest thing that ever came out of North Dakota, I'll yeah, tell you wonderful. that. Yeah.
7: Fargo, mm. North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Very nice, Peggy and Bing. You was terrific. Was we? Oh, yeah, you certainly was. Anything else on your mind that's terrific, Ken? Why, yes, as a matter of fact, the Philco 1405,
8: the world's finest table radio phonograph. They, they still have some of those left, Ken? Yeah. That doesn't speak well for you. I thought you was the world's finest radio salesman.
7: Yes, uh, but you see, Philco has such a dandy factory, they keep turning them out as fast as I can sell them.
8: Oh, no. Then why don't you stop talking and they'll stop producing?
7: Oh, no, no. We can't do that, thing until every vacant table in the country has a 1405
8: on it. Oh, that day is almost here, Ken. Every place I go, I see 1405s on everybody's tables. Well, yeah, but you see, the
7: trouble is the furniture manufacturers won't let us rest. As soon as we fill up the tables with Philco's, the furniture people turn out a flock of new tables.
8: Good heavens, this thing will go on until the whole country's out of wood. <laughs> well,
7: no, you know, Bing, Mother Nature is turning out more and more trees
8: every day. Timber! It- Let's have a pitch for Philco ere I paste on my villain's mustache and lash you to a log that's headed for the whirling blades of the sawmill.
3: (laughs) Well, luckily,
7: being Mother Nature also
8: keeps turning out more and more
7: people. And for people who want the finest table radio phonograph for their money, the Philco 1405 is a natural. I'm a level, folks. Take a listen to this great table automatic before you buy any radio or phonograph. It gives you the most gorgeous, realistic tone you ever heard from a table model, with quality as fine as that of big consoles costing $200 and more. And there's a reason. This Philco 1405 has a special tone chamber, brand new in a table model, and completely enclosed for full performance. Man, that's real news. Take a listen at your Philco dealer now. You get a two-speed turntable for regular and long-playing records, automatic record changer, plus a sensational radio. Compare it and judge for yourself. Ask for the 1405, the world's finest table radio phonograph from Philco, the leader.
8: About three weeks ago, I got a big charge out of seeing a bright satchel-mouthed face beaming at the world from the cover of Time magazine, face of one of my best friends. The accompanying article gave Americans a chance to dig the fabulous facts in the life story of an all-time great among the giants of jazz. Tonight, I'm just popping with pride. Give a friendly five to the most sensational horn of them all, Lewis Satchmo Armstrong. Yes, Mala. Louis, I want to tell you it's fine as wine in the summertime to have you with us. I'm pleasurated,
3: Bob. <laughs>
8: <laughs> I wish you could see the grin on this man's face, folks. When you smile, Louis, you look like the Grand Canyon with teeth. <laughs>
19: I know it. I'm probably the only trumpet man in the whole world who can blow
8: from either end of a horn.
3: <laughs>
8: well, certainly no matter which end of the horn you work on, Louie, it always comes out sweet as a nut. Tell me, how do you manage to hit those crisp, clear, clean notes? Well, it's easy, Pops. Every night I dip my trumpet and
19: dip. And did, what's that, did? Yeah, did's the stuff that's already done what does is gonna try to do. (laughs)
3: Do Do
8: Do You know, that might help me. I I better try gargling with that stuff someday. (laughs) Don't you do anything
19: to that voice of yours? No. Mm -hmm. Papa Bing? Your road to success has been
8: paved with the gravel. Therefrom,
3: he <laughs> I'll say to you. <laughs> uh,
8: Louis, I do want to congratulate you seriously on getting your picture on the cover of Time. That's really something. Thanks, Mr. C. And if I remember correctly. Didn't you get your face on time? Yes, but I haven't been keeping up the payments lately. Uh, (laughs) Look out, (laughs) Fox. How'd you feel that great day when you first went to work on a riverboat for 55 bucks a week? I was scared to death. (laughs) Scared to death of what?
19: Yeah, well, I didn't think there was that much money in the world. I figured the U.S.
8: Treasury was going to run out of that happy green any minute. You don't have to worry about that, Louie. They got printing presses down in Washington that can turn out money faster, and we can send it back to them. (laughs) Well,
3: Bing,
19: even round-trip money is good. It's fun feeling it. (laughs) They
8: dug it. To coin an expression, though, standing around here yakking with you is like the old times, isn't It sure it? is. Remember understand. all the fun we had making pictures together, Louis? Mm, yes, sir. how about that penance from heaven
19: mm. and boy to the blues?
17: And the skeleton in that closet rattled his bones. Yeah,
3: know,
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we ought to do another
19: picture together, Lou. Well, well, I'd like mean, to bang, but I don't know. think. I don't know. I don't think I should. Why not? Well, I don't like to cut in on the Mr. Fitzgerald. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Oh, we'd move over for you. We'd, we'd make room. Hey, Louie, what do you say we get Brother T. Godin and Brother Venuti up here and let the people hear the truth, huh? Well, uh, that's a good idea, Mr. Bing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack and Joe just come forward now with trombone and fiddle. We shall begin to begin. beginning. Hiya, Jack.
18: Hiya, Vane.
8: You're looking fine. Better than the days when we were living in the pen drugstore window. <laughs> oh, those were happy days, though, Ben. Yeah, remember the morning we woke up that one morning someone had taken our shoes and stockings off and we were modeling Blue Jay corn plaster. <laughs> Yeah, but no one took off the shoes. If you'll recall, we didn't have anything. <laughs> Must have had shoes, Jack. What did we lace every morning? A toe. Yeah, now. That's right. Well, we just did that to keep up our morale. I see Mr. Venuti's here. He's all rosin' up. Pride right in, Joe, huh? Uh, say, Joe, do you still sleep on that spaghetti mattress?
10: <laughs> sure. Uh, I got it wired like
8: an electric blanket. No. <laughs>
3: Late at night. Nice.
8: thought <laughs> so I can grab a little midnight snack, huh? <laughs> Say, Louis, how about you and Jack and, and Joel starting out with something? What do you got there? Well, okay, uh, how about jumping a
19: little Panama? Panama. There, get some chops really, there. You really, you got chops
8: Everybody hold on to their seats. Hold on to your hats, your programs, and the person next to you, because we may not come down till Friday. I don't know. <laughs> got your horn, Louis? Yeah,
18: I'm ready now.
8: Beat it off, somebody. This is Panama. This comes on. Look out, man. One, two... That version of Panama may set the government back a pretty penny. The, the canal might be in sections by now. Say, Louis, how about floating down that lazy river? I'd love to do that. Do it right in here, huh? Oh,
3: wait, wait, wait. That's fine. Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Up the
18: lazy river, where
19: the old will run. Up the lazy river, with the loony sun. In the a kind of
18: tree Up the lazy olden- river Oh, you river Come
19: on in with that trombone,
18: Mr. Jackson.
3: (laughs)
8: Hey, I just happened to think, while well, I know another famous lazy. Lazy, bo- lazy Boone. Oh, lazy. I I'll, sing it. I'll sing it if you do the mugging. Yeah, you man.
3: You Move right
8: up here. Jack? Oh, that's so pretty. Play it again,
3: Jack. Yeah,
8: yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd like to be alone. Yeah. <laughs> How lazy, bow mm-hmm. Sleeping in the sun. Say it, Baba. How do you expect to get your day's
18: work done? Now, I never expect to get no day's work done. You're not <laughs> concentrating
8: it at all, I guess. <laughs>
18: I'm concentrating on sleeping in the noonday sun. <laughs>
17: All lazy bone yeah,
8: Sleeping in the shade Are you swinging? How do you ever expect I... to get that corn meal made? Now, Mr. Bing, I just don't want no corn meal made What is your touch? Tell me
19: Because uh, from morning to night <laughs> you catch me sleeping in that
8: good old shade
3: <laughs>
8: <laughs> Why, when taters need spraying Yeah. I bet you keep praying I yeah, always pray, I always pray That the bugs just fall off of the vine Sing it, Papa, sing it And when you go fishing nah. If you do go fishing, which Sometime, I missed out uh, two, Five years ago I bet yeah. you keep wishing that the fish Don't take no grabs at your line Papa, for two Lazy bones yeah. Loafing through the day. That so sounds good to me. <laughs> I expected, you ain't gonna make a filthy dime that way. No, you're not. No, I never ever expect to make a dime that way, Mr.
18: Bing. Cause of, ba bu- 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 right <laughs>
3: Well, he never heard a word I said. Oh yeah.
8: well, While everybody's laying down, everybody's stretched out, including the two vocalists. <laughs> I think we better drag in that old rocking chair and tilt it to and fro, huh Jack? Old
18: rocking chair got me good. Yeah. Old rocking chair got your father. Came by my side. And you came by your side. Fetch me a drink of water. Now you know you don't want no water, father. <laughs> <laughs> i to you going to tend my high. Can't get from this heaven, oh, cabin hook out. What cabin choking, father? More. You ain't going nowhere. You ain't going nowhere, love. Just sitting here grabbing Grab him at the flood round my rocking chair. Rockin' chair, love. Do you remember dear old Aunt Harriet? I remember Aunt Harriet. How long in heaven she be. About a year and a half, I think. Send me a sweet chariot. Chariot. For the end of the trouble I see. My sweet cherry. Old rockin' jazz got me low, got me low. Old rockin' chair got your father. And the jet, dear, is treppin' up on me. Tell them about it for To my old, old rockin' I can
8: Song for St. Patrick's Day and particularly for the distinguished group at the opening of Glenn McCarthy's Stylish Shamrock Hotel in Houston, Texas.
17: If you ever go across the sea to Ireland Then maybe at the closing of your day You will sit and watch the moon rise over Claddagh. And watch the sun go down on Galway Bay. And the strangers came and tried to teach us their way. They scorned us just for being what we are. But they might as well go chasing after moving or light a penny candle from the star and if there's gonna be a life hereafter and somehow I'm sure there's gonna be I will ask my God to let me make my heaven In that dear land across the Irish Sea
8: Well, that about brings this mash bubbling to the brim. I'd like to tilt my skimmer though to Miss Peggy Lee for buzzing up from Tinselville. I, nice I tinselville think that's nice Tinselville.
13: Very nice to be
8: with us tonight.
13: Well, it was a crock full of kicks for me, Bing. I really enjoyed hearing the mellow members of the Society of Hot. Oh
8: yes, the Jazz Huts. How about that? Those lads really lay a limp largo on the line, don't they? <laughs> uh, we're just warming up, Mr. Bing. <laughs>
19: You ought to be around here about four in the morning. Oh, no,
8: no. <laughs> that's way past my bedtime, Louis. What's the matter with you, Bing? Have the ears squared, Joe? No, they just softened me up. <laughs> I got to get home early and hit the hair. I'm just a mess in the morning. <laughs> now, Jack, I want to thank you and Louie for busting in with your horns, and I want to wish you good luck to you on your stand at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. That's
19: uh, You know that big flamingo bird that's uh, on top of the hotel there? Yes, I've seen it. Well, we're going to blow the feathers off of that thing. <laughs> and we're going to finish it and going to look like a big plucked duck when we get... Hey, <laughs> hey, <laughs> oh,
3: let him live without a while.
18: Uh, if we get real hot, we'll
8: roast it till the juice runs down and pools up in the patio. <laughs> I may drop by in my gravy boat. <laughs> Say, Vanuti still here? Joe? Yeah, Bing. Joe, where's your small stylish combination holding forth these nights? My band is at Sims Cafe in Ocean Park. Oh, what a program we have. You take, We take you from the desert to the beach, just like that. Boom, boom. Uh, where are you appearing, Bing? I'm appearing at the Paramount Studios in Hollywood. Uh, are you uh, making
10: a picture, or are you singing in the studio restaurant? <laughs>
8: I'm doing both. I forgot to read the small print in my contract.
20: (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to be with you next week, Next
8: week, Peggy, Broadway's favorite daughter, marvelous Ethel Merman, joins us here in California.
20: Well, that I have to hear. Oh,
8: don't miss her. She really comes on. Thanks again to all of you. And now, folks, there's a reminder here that the 1949 sale of Easter Seals begins this week. If you'd like to help a crippled child walk, help a crippled kid become a useful, happy citizen buy Easter Seals. Easter Seals for Crippled Children. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir.
7: This program was produced time in
9: San Francisco
7: by Bill Morrow and Murdo McKenzie. You'll the Philco Radio Time Next to near Bing Crosby, John Scott Trotter, and his orchestra, Judd Collins with the Mayor, and then guest, Ethel Merman. And remember, keep your eye on your Philco dealer now for the greatest values in radio phonographs from Philco, the leader.
0: Crosby's Philco Radio Time with Peggy Lee, Louis Armstrong, Jack Teagarden, and Joe Venuti from March 16, 1949. And from the big broadcast, I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Harold Bailey is our co-producer, Douglas Bell is our audio engineer, and this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at eighty-eight 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. September of 1954 marked the start of the third season of the groundbreaking CBS series, Gunsmoke. By that time, the show had attracted a sponsor, a tobacco company, and the network knew it had a hit. It was no small achievement in a time when dramatic radio was struggling against the challenge of a new medium. A year later, more than half of American homes had televisions. Gunsmoke Hit the ground running, though, with a characteristically strong script by John Meston and a company of actors with tremendous chemistry. The initial show that third season had two titles, The Handcuffs, and then, in parentheses, The Promise. It's the September 6, 1954 episode of Gunsmoke.
1: you talking to me?
2: What's it look like
1: I'm doing? I guess I pretty near fell asleep sitting
2: here hot today, ain't
1: it? I didn't come to Dodge to talk about the weather. A stranger here, ain't
10: you? Looking for For the sheriff. Where do I find him? You won't find him. Why? There ain't no sheriff in Dodge. Maybe I can help you. I'm Chester Proudfoot. Well, I'm real pleased to know you, Chester. Now, if you quit lying to me Don't him and tell snap
2: you... your teeth at me. I ain't lying. But if you're looking for the
10: law, there's a U.S. Marshal here. U.S. Marshal? That's even better. Where is he?
2: Inside. Follow me. This fella here is looking for the law, Mr. Dillon. Oh? I come in.
10: You're the U.S. Marshal?
2: Yeah, that's right.
10: Well... My name's Brake, Marshall. I'm from Mingo.
2: Mingo? That's way north of here, ain't it? It's
10: uh, a couple hundred miles. And I rode all the way down here on the tail of a man called Hank Springer. I thought he'd come to jump to Santa Fe for St. Louis, but I tracked him right into that place up the street there, the Dodge House. He's got him a room and he's holed up in it. How's that sound? I almost caught him this morning. Leastwise, I got close enough to put a bullet in his leg, but it didn't stop him. He's dangerous, Marshal, and I want your help taking him. Well, what do you want him for, Break? Murder. Oh? No? I killed a fella called Dobie on his ranch near Mingo. Oh, here. Here, Marshal, I got a warrant for him. There you see. Ah. So you're a deputy, huh? That's what the sheriff made me. He wanted somebody to go after
2: Hank Springer, and I took the job. Well, that's one way of doing it. Why didn't the sheriff come after
10: him himself? Well, he didn't want to bother guess. Anyway, he's going to give me $50 when I get back with Hank, dead or alive. Uh Uh-huh.
2: So the sheriff up at Mingo will pay somebody, most anybody, $50 to do his work for him? That's his business, Marshal. Well, then why don't you go arrest this Hank Springer? You got a warrant you're a deputy?
1: No, he's laying up in that
10: room armed and hurt, and he ain't gonna take easy. You're a U.S. Marshal, and you gotta help me.
2: Well, maybe there'll be less trouble if I do. Chester. Yes, sir. Go get Doc Adams. One man's already been shot. <laughs> Rooms in, break.
1: Second door down there, fourteen. Ah,
2: yeah. doc. I'm here, man. You better stay where you are. We won't need you till the shooting's over. I'll wait. You stay back too, huh, Chester. Yes, sir. All right, break. Sing out. But let's make sure it's your man Springer in there. Hank.
1: Hank Springer.
10: We got your trap. Come on out. Who's that? It's Bill Brake from Mingo. I've been deputized to take you back. What for, Break? You know darn well what for. For murdering Dobie. I didn't murder Dobie nor no one else. Then why'd you run? Heard the sheriff was trying to
2: stick me with it. Yep. You go away and leave me alone, or I will kill somebody. Wait a minute, Brake. Springer. This is Matt Dillon. I'm a U.S. Marshal. I want to talk to you. Marshal, huh? What are you doing there? Well, I brought a doctor along to take that bullet out of your leg as soon as you open this door. No. Don't you try
16: opening that door, neither.
2: Listen to me. Fighting the law won't help you. But if you didn't kill doby all you have to do is go back and prove where you were when it happened. I,
16: I didn't kill him, Marshal. I swear, I
2: didn't. Oh, that lie! Shut up, Brick. Springer, if you didn't do it, stop acting like you did. Nothing's going to happen to you if you're innocent. They can't hang you without you proving you did it.
16: Well, maybe you're right, Marshal.
2: Of course I'm right.
1: One thing, though, I won't go back in no handcuffs. What? I won't go back in handcuffs.
2: There's a warrant out for you. You're going back under arrest. Not
21: in handcuffs. Not like no chained-up dog. It's the one thing I couldn't stand. I'll die fighting first.
2: Break. You can take this man back without handcuffing him, can't you?
1: Well, sure.
2: Sure, I I, I can... Springer, Brick says he won't handcuff you.
16: Let's hear him say it.
10: All right, tell him, Brick. I won't handcuff you, Hank.
2: That's a promise?
10: That's a promise. You swear? I give you my word.
2: You say you got a a doctor with you, Marshal. He's standing right here, Springer. Uh, Okay. All right, Springer, put your hands out that door empty. I ain't going to fight, Marshal.
10: Hold your gun on him, Marshal. He might try something. Get out of the way, Brick. Okay.
2: I'll take your gun, Springer. Yes, for sure, (laughs)
3: Marshal.
2: All right, now go lie down on the bed. Doc, come on in here, huh?
13: Coming, man.
22: Let me take those pants off, young fellow. Let me have a look at that leg.
2: There's a gun break. Sure. I didn't think he'd have the guts to use it. Match. Now, How does it look, Doc? There's no bullet in him. It went right through the flesh here
10: Mm. and out here. I'll just clean it up a little bit and take a few stitches. How soon will he be able to travel, Doc? Well, he ought to wait a couple of days. A couple of days? I want to get back to Mingo.
21: This man will leave when I say he's ready. And not before.
10: He's my prisoner, ain't he? You heard him,
2: Brick. And another thing, you made a promise you wouldn't put handcuffs on him. See that you keep it. Why? Sure,
1: Marshal, of course I will.
2: Now, Chester. Yes, sir? I'll be over at the O.K. Stable for a couple of hours. I told Kitty I'd look at a horse she's thinking about buying. Okay, sir. You uh, better keep an eye on things here for a while, huh? You know where to find me if there's any trouble.
11: Kitty? You've been
2: on him an hour. Is that all you got to say? Should I buy him or not? Uh, not for $40, Kitty. What's wrong with him? Oh, well, nothing, I can see.
11: But he's not worth
2: $40. Oh, you can buy a lot of horse for that much money, Kitty.
11: I like this one. Oh, hello, Marshal.
2: Hello, John. Look, Kitty, you you don't get time to ride very often. Why don't you rent a horse when you want one, huh?
11: Because I want to
2: own a horse.
11: What's the point of working if you can't own something now and then?
2: Okay, Kitty. All right, now start at 25 and don't give them a dollar more than 30.
11: Hmm? You mean I got to get into one of those horse-trading affairs where you spend the whole day sitting on your heels and scratching at the dirt with a straw? trying to I think of a million ways to avoid coming right out with what you're really there for? <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> I can make $10 faster than that. All
12: right, all
2: right, Kitty. I'll try to make the deal for you.
11: Oh, wait a minute. After all, I'm a woman. Maybe I can get them a little confused. Huh? You know? I'll bet I can buy that horse for $20. <laughs> hey, Chester, how do you like my new horse? Fine,
2: Mr. Kitty, fine, but I don't have time to look at him now. Oh, what's the matter, Chester? Well, it's Hank Springer, Mr. Dillon. What happened? You see, I went downstairs to cool myself off with a couple of beers, and when I got back to his room, he was gone. Gone? Yes, sir. Doc had already left, and I was only away for about an hour. I had a feeling something was going to happen. Well, where's Brake? Wasn't he watching him? Well, that's the bad part of it. Brake's there all right, but he's dead. What? I took a good look at him, Mr. Dillon. There's no bullet hole in him, but his neck's all swole. Well, Hank Springer choked him to death with his bare hands, that's what. Ah, no wonder he wanted Brake to promise not to handcuff him. And another thing, Mr. Dillon, when I asked the clerk, he remembered seeing Hank run out and grab a horse from the hitching rail. Well, he's got a good start on us. See you when we got back, Kitty. (laughs) no way of telling how good a horse Hank Springer had stolen from the hitchin' rail. But Chester and I had mounts that we'd trained for this sort of a ride. And about dusk, the sign on his trail told us that we were getting closer to it. It was just after dark when we spotted a campfire in a cottonwood grove. We slowed down as we rode up to it. Hey, those trees would make an awful good ambush, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. I don't see nobody around that fire. Let's spread out a little, Chester. Okay, sir. All right, that's far enough. Start shooting, Chester. We can't get both of us. I ain't
21: shooting no more.
2: All right, then throw down your gun and move up to the fire where we can see you.
21: I am. I'm doing it. I got my hands
2: up. Right in, Chester, but keep separated.
21: There he is. I can see him. Don't shoot me. I didn't know who it was. Why, well, that ain't Hank Springer, Mr. Dillon. No. My name's Jones. I'm a buffalo hunter. I thought it was
2: him coming back. Who's him? I don't know. I don't know who he was. Step over this way, mister, out of the firelight. I don't want to get shot at any more tonight.
21: It was a mistake, I tell you. I wouldn't have shot at you if I could have seen who it was You can't blame me Not with a man like that running loose
2: Look, mister, I'm on the trail of a murderer A man named Hank Springer He's a young fellow and he's got a bad leg
21: That's him, that's him He's a murderer, sure enough He killed my partner not over an hour ago What? My partner's lying in them bushes over there I wrapped him up in his saddle blanket So I could bury him tomorrow
2: Well, how'd it happen?
21: Well, sir, we was cooking something to eat and that fella rode up and wanted to trade horses. My partner said no. But Springer got down and said he'd take the horse anyway. And my partner tried to stop him. And well, he got shot that way and now he's dead.
2: Ah. Uh, Springer rode north, didn't he?
21: Yes, sir. And I tell you something else. The horse he took ain't gonna carry him far. That horse got his lungs frosted last winter.
2: Well, that'll
7: help.
21: There's a cabin five miles straight ahead, the way he was going. You can't get no further than that. All them people got there is a balky old mule.
7: Good.
2: I, uh, I'm sorry about your partner, mister, but we'll try to catch Springer before he kills anybody else. Come on, Chester. (laughs) There was no moon that night, and it was pitch dark, so we had to guess at right and straight. But we managed pretty well, and in about an hour, we saw the lights of a cabin off to our left. We rode over, left our horses a hundred yards from it, and then went the rest of the way on foot. We could hear voices inside, so we sneaked up to the window. I you, lady, I can't wait much longer. Are you sure you ain't lying to me?
1: It's okay. Hank Springer, Mister. and it's no him, right now.
2: Why I should lie to you.
13: My husband should have been back before this, but it won't do you no good when he does come. You won't get far on that mule, ours.
2: Well, what's wrong with your mule?
13: Nothing, except for being ornery and stubborn.
2: Huh. I'll get him over that fast enough.
13: You can have the mule, Mister. I don't care about that. But don't hurt my husband, please.
2: Lady, I don't want to hurt nobody. Listen, they get in my way like some has done lately.
13: You're enough now, ain't
2: you? Never you mind. Look, when your husband walks in here, just don't, don't you give me away.
13: All I ask you is you don't shoot him. Chester.
2: I won't hmm? shoot him come unless he ahead. starts it. But ain't gonna get shot neither. Be we better do something quick before her husband gets back, Mr. Dillon. Look, I got an idea, Chester, and if that woman's at all smart, it might work. What? You get out there in front of the cabin, but far enough away so nobody can see you. And then you yell for her.
12: Yell for her?
2: Pretend you're her husband. Tell her to come out and give you a hand with a mule.
12: Yeah, what'll I
2: call her? I don't know her name. Call her wife or woman, anything like that. It doesn't matter. She'll know it isn't her husband. Where will you be at? Flat against the wall by the front door. He won't trust her to come out alone. And when he comes out, I'll take him. All right, get going. Okay. So while we're waiting, you might just fix me some bread and some meat to take along, ma'am.
13: Bread and meat? Pork fat and beans is all I got around here, mister.
2: Well, I I could eat some of that. Hey, wife, come on
13: out here and
21: give me a hand.
2: Who is that? Woman, get on out here, I said. This
21: mule won't take another step.
2: That's your husband. No. Don't try to fool me. Open that door. No, wait a minute. Put the light out first. All right, now open it, or else you think something's wrong.
21: What is taking you so long?
13: I gotta sit out here all night.
2: Well, answer him.
13: I'm coming, Jack.
2: Now go on. I'll walk right behind you. Go on.
3: All right.
2: All right, come on in, Chester.
13: Who are you? Where'd you come from?
2: I'm Marshal Dillon from Dodge, ma'am. You got nothing to worry about. Hank Springer's killed his last man.
13: Who's this? I knew it wasn't
2: Jack. Well, it worked fine, didn't it, Mr. Dillon? He walked into it like a lamb to slaughter. Good evening, ma'am. Hello. Get his gun, Chester. Yeah, sure. Tell me, ma'am, is your husband really coming back tonight?
13: Yes, he is, Marshal.
2: Well, we'll spend the night here if you'll let us. But I'd like to borrow that mule in the morning. Hank Springer wanted to ride him up to Mingo. And I'm going to see that he does. started out next morning, and it took us two days to get to Mingo. But not so much because of the mule as because of Hank Springer's leg. I was willing to stop and let him ease it for a day or so, but he said no. He'd rather get the ride over with. Beyond that, however, he didn't say anything until we rode into town. Mingo was a small place and out of the way of the cattle trails, so it was as quiet and peaceful as any frontier town could be. That there's the sheriff's office, across the street. Okay. Well, no use to stop there, though. Why not? Sheriff don't use it much. Most of the time, he's gambling over to the golden girl. That's it. The golden girl down the street there, see? Well, I'm not turning any prisoner over to a sheriff at a gambling table. You ride on ahead, Chester, and tell him to come outside.
1: All right, sir, I'll do it.
2: Springer? Well, there's still time to tell me. There's, uh, something I'm sure curious about. You can ask me, Marshal. Why in the world did you head back up here? Find Jim Powell. Uh, who's Jim Powell? I figured it out, Marshal. It was him that killed Dobie. Oh. Well, uh, you can tell him that in court, I guess. Now, here we are. Let's get on. All right. <coughs> Marshal, yeah, you still think I'm lying, don't you? Well, I don't know, Springer. But it doesn't matter much what I think, does it? Oh, I guess not. But I can prove I didn't do it. Then why did you run in the first place? Well, I knew he was after me. I got scared. Shouldn't have, but I did. And was well, a sheriff. Marshal Dillon, I'm Sheriff Bradley. Hello? The man here told me all about what happened. I'll take charge of Hank Springer now. Look, I'm going to get a fair trial. Ain't I sure? I don't talk to murderers, Hank. I don't care about that buffalo hunter, but killing breaks a different matter. He was my deputy. Well, if you hadn't have picked a coward for a deputy, I wouldn't have had to kill him. What do you mean, a coward? He was a coward and a liar, boy. Wait a minute. What are you saying? Like, well, break. Break promised me he wouldn't put no handcuffs on me. He swore he wouldn't, didn't he, Marshal? He did. Well, he he got scared and he busted his word. I went crazy when he put them things on me, Marshal, and and I choked him. And then I got the key. I took them handcuffs off and threw them away. Well, I I had to run, then. You're a fool, Hank. If you'd have come back peaceful with break, you'd be a free man right now. You mean you found out it was Jim Powell that killed Dobie? Of course I did. Jim Powell got real drunk the other day and started bragging. Me and a couple other fellas got him in jail and he confessed soon as he sobered up. I knew you didn't do it, Hank. I knew it all along.
16: Well, then why was you saying I did? Why'd you come
2: looking for me? Well... You just had to stick it onto somebody, didn't you? I should have figured that, knowing you. You're gonna hang now anyway. What difference does it make? Well, oh you'll be glad are... to see me hang, won't you, Sheriff? I never did like you, Hank. That's why I picked you in the first place. Hank. What, Marshal? I uh I've changed my mind. About what? About turning you over to this. Rotten, worthless sheriff. You can't talk like that. Shut man. up. Hank hasn't committed any crime around here, so I'm taking him back to Dodge for trial. He's my prisoner, Marshal. You can't cheat me out of him. I got a right to him. You got nothing. And, sheriff or no sheriff, I'll bend a six gun across your head if I hear any more out of you. Well? All right, let's go, right. Hank. Thank you, Marshal. I'd like that just fine. First, Marshal, I want to go over to jail there. I want to tell Jim Powell I don't bear him no grudge for letting him chase me before he talked. Because he might feel bad about it, especially the trouble I'm in now. Well, that's decent of you, Hank. i it's your jail, Sheriff, so take him. We'll wait outside. Come on. Bet you sure ain't losing credit for bringing me to trial, don't you, Sheriff? That's enough, Hank. Stop needling it. I always did hate you, Hank. Yeah, and I always know... Stop it, I said. All right, Marshal, I will. All right, take him in, Sheriff, but don't be long. We gotta get started for Dodge. Come on, Hank. You walk in front of me. Mr. Dillon, a sheriff like that makes a man kind of shame, don't it? I mean, it makes people think the law don't mount to much. Ah, the law's bigger than any one man, Chester. Yes, sir, I guess so. What? Hey, that come from the jail. Yeah, it sure did. Hank, Mr. Dillon, he's been shot. All right, put the gun up, Sheriff. He started to run. Run where? Into a cell? No, he jumped me first. I had to shoot him. he's dead. It was his idea coming in here and trying to get away. He wanted my gun. So he jumped you, huh? He swung around, grabbed for my gun. I had to shoot him. In the back? I don't know where I shot him, Marshal. What difference does it make? Hand me your gun, Sheriff. What? Your gun. Give it to me. You're forgetting I'm the sheriff in this town, ain't you? You're the sheriff, but I'm arresting you for murder. No. No? Get away from me, Martin. What? He was just about to draw on Mr. Dillon. No, he wasn't, Chester. But I wish he had. I'd rather have ridden back to Dodge without him. He's going to make mighty poor company. <laughs>
1: by Norman McDonald stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dodkin, Jack Crucian, John Daner, Joe Forte, and Irene Tedrow. Harley Bear as Chester, Howard McNear as Doc, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in... Gunsmoke
0: The Handcuffs The Promise An episode of Gunsmoke from the late summer of 1954 It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5 I'm Murray Horwitz Jill Harold Bailey is our co-producer And Douglas Bell is our audio engineer you can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or follow us on Twitter at WAMU885. And by all means, visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Every once in a while, we're able to listen to an example of newsman Edward R. Murrow's extraordinary series, This I Believe, which he described as presenting... The Personal Philosophies of Thoughtful Men and Women in All Walks of Life. We're about to hear from Dr. Charles Johnson, a pioneering sociologist, educator, and activist. Broadcast in 1951 by CBS, here is Dr. Johnson from This I Believe. This I Believe. The world is riven by national frontiers, but
2: there is no limit to the sweep and penetration of a free man's inquiring mind. One of America's leading sociologists, Dr. Charles S. Johnson, president of Fisk University, has explored people beyond the boundaries of race and creed. Not yet 60, he has written 17 books, most of them on the Negro, and has served humanity on assignments ranging from the Mark Twain Society to the United Nations. For the personal philosophy sustaining such enormous endeavor, listen now to
4: Dr. Johnson. My father's father was a slave, and my father was a devoutly religious Baptist minister. He had both the will and a way of translating his religious convictions into useful and pioneering social action. Religion is most real to those who feel the need for comfort and refuge beyond the gift of man. There is a transporting beauty welling up from deep-flowing rivers of sorrow which touches the buried springs of all human life, in the religious expression of the slave and the newly free. I'm certain that man is made both good and bad by his institutions. These institutions are responsible for the shaping of our personalities, our morals, and the patterns of our social relations. The reshaping of our institutions guided by the highest ideals of religious conviction, is our responsibility. This explains why, in the logic of my life, I can take an unequivocal point of view regarding inequalities. It is my belief that while there are inequalities in personal gifts, there is no justification for the inequality in social and economic environment. Years ago, as a college boy in Richmond, Virginia, I had a job investigating needy applicants for Christmas baskets. This opportunity led me into amazing paths of discovery and awakening. It gave me a lasting conviction which became the core of all that I can recognize as a social philosophy. This was simply that no man can be justly judged until you've looked at the world through his eyes. It carried over to children classed as delinquents, to the impoverished tobacco workers of the city, and to men in prison. It carried over to the humble people who made up the families of the left side of the tracks. This insight was channeled into my work with the Negro migrants moving in millions in a current too vast for them to comprehend and into each successive human problem that has become a part of my experience, whether in the South, or in the cities of the North, or in Africa, or Haiti, or in Japan. What life means to me is something constantly in process of reconstruction, a reconstruction made necessary by ever-shifting scenes and situations, but which, I hope draws nourishment from each difficult contact with life. Life to me is an endless challenge, a challenge imposed by the forces of nature and social life itself. But I like to feel that it is the spiritual life of the world which is the greatest bulwark against the threatening tides of worldliness, greed, and insensitiveness to the needs and desires of man. Some people call that spiritual life nature, and some call it God. That was Fisk University's president,
2: Charles S. Johnson of Nashville, Tennessee. Scholar, educator, social
0: scientist, but most of all, a citizen with a simple, moving faith. Edward R. Murrow and Dr. Charles Johnson in the series This I Believe in 1951 and from the big broadcast on WAMU. Rarely do valiant war heroes pop up in Dragnet, but that seems to be the case confronting detectives Friday and Smith in tonight's episode It's called The Big Underground, and it comes from December 28,
3: 1954
1: NBC and Dragnet Ladies and gentlemen The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent.
12: Dragnet. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end on Crime to Punishment. Dragnet is the story of your police force in action.
2: It was Monday, July 6th. It was sunny in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Bernard. My name's Friday. We're on our way out from the office, and it was 8.23 a.m. when we got to the corner of Walton Avenue and Adams Boulevard, a used car lot office. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but you can't come in here. We're police officers. Well, what, Frank Smith? That's right. My partner, Sergeant Friday. How do you do? My name's Binion, John Binion. How are you? I thought the door was locked. Didn't want anyone to come in until you fellas got here. Uh, Are you the owner? Yeah. Did you put in the call? That's right. When I found out, I'd been robbed. You want to tell us what happened? I sure do. Only one trouble. What's that, sir? Not much I can tell you. Opened the door this morning, same as usual. Came in, hung up my hat, and sat down at the desk. Yeah. Wouldn't have noticed anything was wrong, but I promised my wife I'd type her jingle first thing when I got here. What's that? A jingle. Wife works all the contests and papers, magazines, you know. Oh, yeah. She writes them in longhand, then I have to type them. Uh-huh. It takes up my time, but it makes her happy and keeps peace in the family. Yeah, you want to go on? I sat down at the desk. Opened the door on this side. See? Yeah. Reached in to pull the typewriter up into position. No typewriter. It was gone, huh? Yeah. Knew something was wrong. I'd used it yesterday, just before I locked up the place. I see. I looked around to see if anything else was missing. The adding machine and my desk fountain pen are gone, too. Now, how about the outside? Are there any cars missing? Yeah. One. A 1953 Dodge. I was saving the real bad news to last. All right, we'll need a description, the color, the model, the engine number. Mm-hmm. I knew you'd want it. Got it all right here on this card. Here you go. Okay. Better call this in, huh? Yeah. Uh, Clayton the lab, too. Huh? Right. You can use either phone. Thank you. Can you give us the serial numbers on the typewriter and the adding machine? Have to talk to Mabel first. She has them filed someplace. That's your secretary? Yeah. This is her day off. Well, now, as far as you know, then, you've told us about everything that was taken. Yeah. yeah. Were these windows locked when you came in? Yeah. I never open them. Don't have to. Place is air conditioned. Uh-huh. You see the front door was locked, huh? Yeah. Extra key is gone from the board, though. Well, it will be right out there. All right. What were you saying about those keys? Want to step over here? I'll show you. Now, these are the keys for the cars on the lots. All labeled. Here's where the keys for the Dodge were. Mm-hmm. Now, this hook had the extra key for the front door. mm mm-hmm. Minion, how many keys are there for the office? Three. I have one. Mabel has one. The other one was on the board. How long has she worked for you? Mabel? That's right. About eight years. If you think she had anything to do with this, forget it. I'd as soon accuse my own wife. I don't understand that, Minion, but we'll have to talk to her. All right. I'll call Mabel and have her come down. We'd appreciate that. I know she didn't have anything to do with this. I'll give you odds on that. Anyway, I've read in the papers recently where there have been other burglaries like this. Yeah. My money says it's somebody with experience. Maybe. You must have some idea who's doing it. Well, we're working on it. In other words, you don't have us to go on. Not a lot. Mm. Doesn't sound too good for me. I mean, my chances of getting my property back. We'll do what we can, sir. I know, but if you don't have any leads, if they don't make any mistakes, there's much you can do, is there? Seems to me the thieves always have the edge. Yeah, it begins that way. Huh? They always start before we do. lab and Lincoln Prince went over the office. John Binion's secretary came in, but after questioning her, we decided she had nothing to do with the crime. She went through her desk and told us that a check made out to her employer was missing. Binion called his bank and they promised to notify him if the check was cashed and returned to them. We got the serial numbers on the adding machine and the typewriter, and we notified pawn shop detail. Bulletins were also sent to secondhand stores. The latest burglar was similar to others that we've been investigating. The thief's M.O. was no different than we had on file, and to date, we had been unable to make any recoveries. We talked to informants, but they could give us no leads to the identity of the burglar. The report from the crime lab was the same as on all the other thefts. Entry had been made through the door. The lock had not been forced, indicating either the use of a key or some instrument to pick the lock. Plate and failed to find any usable fingerprints. Tuesday, July fourteenth, 10:31 a.m. Yeah, I got it. Burglary, Friday. Yeah. Hmm? What's your name? You have it now? All right, we'll be right out. Right. Bye. <clears throat> it was Binion he called from his bank. Yeah? I think he turned a lead. What do you mean? Stolen check was cashed. When we got to John Binion's office, he showed us the check. We compared the endorsement with his signature, and it proved to be a good forgery. The check had been cashed by a Sylvia Carnes. Frank and I drove to the address. It was a small bookstore at the corner of Citrus Avenue and Hollywood Boulevard. Miss Carnes was shown the check, and we asked if she remembered who'd given it to her.
20: Let me think now. john been not too good on people's names. Let me check the sales slips for that day. I should have a record of what he bought. Excuse me. Yes, ma'am. I forget names, but when I look at the books they buy, most of the time I can remember the person.
2: Mm-hmm.
20: Yeah, here they are.
2: You always write the name on cash sales?
20: Yes, it's a good way to build a mailing list. Mm hmm. Here it is John Binion on the 8th. Let's see. Mm
2: hmm. Well, can you remember anything about the man?
20: I might. May I have to slip, Mr. Friday? Here you
3: are.
20: From Blackboard to Back Bay. Oh, yes. This is by a country school teacher. Gave up the little red schoolhouse to become a private tutor. Tells about some of his problems and how he dealt with them quite amusing. Yes,
2: ma'am, but does it remind you of anything about the man? No. Well,
20: let's see what else he bought. Locks down through the ages. I never read that one. I guess it's about locks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm beginning to remember. Yes, ma'am? He said locks were a hobby with him. Does that mean anything to you?
2: Yes, yeah, Mike, but can you tell us anything about the man's looks?
20: Well, now, let's see. I guess he was about your size. Me, ma'am? No, he wasn't quite as... Well, he looked more like Mr. Friday.
12: Yeah. How about his
2: coloring?
20: Had dark hair.
2: Straight. Mm Mm-hmm. Did he have any marks on his face that we might use to identify him? Not that I recall. Could you tell us anything about how he was dressed? I'm afraid not.
20: Other book was The Window Without Curtains. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that reminds me of something. What's that? His voice. Yeah. Seemed almost too precise, too perfect.
2: Did you notice any accent? No. No. Is there anything else you can tell us about his looks? Mm, no. What kind of identification did he show you?
20: A driver's license.
2: And it was made out to John Binion?
20: That's right. I copied the name for the sales slip from it. Mm-hmm.
2: That's the only identification he showed you?
20: Yes, I didn't ask for any more. He seemed to know a lot of the business people in this neighborhood. know. Yeah. Mentioned them by name, said he lived near here before he got married. I see. You no, know, I've been in business for six years. This is my first loss on the check. that right, I've Always been so careful. This man, though, he seems so honest, so polite. Mm-hmm. He's sure rough on me. I have to suffer the loss. Check was for $30, and he only bought $10 worth of books. I gave him $20 of my own money. It was too real loss, I can tell you.
2: Oh, yes, ma'am, there's one thing in your favor. What's that? He's going to feel it more than you will. <laughs> What Sylvia Carnes told us, we knew that our suspect was also a forgery artist or he had connections that could furnish him with suitable identification. Assuming the suspect might still live in the neighborhood, we spent the rest of the day questioning people in the area. We failed to come up with any leads. The next day, we started the canvas again. The manager of a small hotel told us that a man named Paul DeRoe was living there who could fit the partial description we had. In the manager's company, we went upstairs and looked through the room. Hey, Joe. Yeah. A picture on the wall, some kind of
3: certificate, too. Looks like it's written in German. Want to
2: take a look? Well. hmm That looks like Dutch to me. You see it? there? The guy's wearing a 45. Looks like he's carrying American carbine. Well, he's not wearing any kind of a uniform. Hmm. What, what he's trying to prove? Certificate probably says what it's for, huh? Yeah, maybe. Let's find out if this is DeRoe in this picture here. Mr. Blinker, will you take a look at this and tell us if it's DeRoe?
1: Yeah, sure. What
2: do you say? I was younger here, but I'd say it's him. All right, thank you. Frank? Just a minute, Joe. Better see if Miss Carnes can make an identification from this picture. Yeah, take a look at this. Just turned it. Mm-hmm. Found it up there on the shelf, wrapped in that oil-skinned tobacco pouch. Yeah, Torsion bars, vibrator, ballpoint pick. It works. Looks like good steel, too, doesn't it? Well, yes, guess we got the right room. Unless they all come with burger kits. Frank and I continued to search the room. Besides the burger kit, we found three books with the same titles as those bought with a stolen check. Sylvia Carnes identified the picture as being the same man that had passed the check. We called the OBS and asked them to run the name and description of Paul DeRoe through r and A local and an APB were gotten out on the suspect. Frank and I went back to the hotel and decided, because of the physical setup of the lobby, it would be better to wait in the suspect's room. The manager took over the desk, and we arranged for him to notify us with one long ring on the phone when Duroy asked for his key. Three hours went by. Nine thirteen p.m. That's it. Yeah. All right, hold it right there. Oh. Get the uh, light, Frank. Yeah. Who are you? Police officers. What are you doing here? they are police. Eh? That's right. Who are you?
23: Paul sent me up here. Paul DeRoe? That's right. Where's he now? Why do you want to know?
2: Come on, lady. Where is he?
23: Waiting for me. Where? Outside in the car.
2: Is he still waiting? I don't know. What do you mean?
23: Well, he left me off at the door. There wasn't any place to park. All right, go ahead. He was going to drive around the block and pick me up.
2: What kind of a car is he driving?
23: Well, I'm not sure.
2: You rode in it, didn't you? Yes. Well, don't you know what kind it is?
23: I didn't pay any attention. Well, what do you mean? Well, he drives so many different kinds. <laughs>
2: We took the girl Darlene Potter with us and we went down to the lobby. She was instructed to go out to the street and meet Giroux. Frank and I followed her. There was no car waiting outside the hotel. On the chance that he might have parked and was waiting for the girl, Frank went up the street and then crossed to the other side. I walked down the street toward our car. Giroux failed to show up. We went back to the hotel and asked the manager to call us if the suspect returned and then we took the girl down to the city hall. During the trip, she maintained she didn't know what make car he was driving. She said he told her that he was an automobile salesman, but he also worked as a private teacher. We ran her name through R&I, but we found no record. The run on the name Paul DeRoe had failed to turn a package. Leighton Prince was requested to go over DeRoe's room, 10.02 p.m. We continued to interrogate Darlene Potter. How long have you known DeRoe?
23: I told you before, three months.
2: Who do you say he worked for?
23: He never said.
2: Where do you teach?
23: Private homes.
2: Can you give us their names?
23: No, I can't tell you. You don't know? That's right. He, he just said he taught. Never said where. What did he teach? Language. What language? French, I think. You haven't told me what this is all about, but I'm sure there's a mistake. Paul wouldn't have to do anything
2: wrong. Why do you say that?
23: He's too intelligent.
2: Well, it doesn't look that way right now, does it?
23: Paul's a hero.
2: What else do you know about him? What? His background. Where's he from?
23: Oh, I'm not sure. I, I think he said something once about going to school in parents.
2: Is he an American citizen?
23: I just assumed he was. He never said anything different. Uh-huh. Can't you tell me what he's done?
2: We'd like to talk to him about some burglaries and some car thefts.
23: Paul wouldn't steal?
2: Well, maybe so, ma'am. We've got good reason to think he did.
23: Well, there's some mistake. It doesn't fit with the kind of person he is. How do you mean that? It might not make much sense to you.
2: Well, give us a try.
23: Paul was in the war. That's so? Yes, maybe you saw the picture citation in his room.
2: Yeah, we did. What about
23: it? He fought with the Dutch Underground Forces.
2: He told you that, did he?
23: Yes. He only talked about it once or twice. I think he was in that group... I don't remember the name, but they went in and organized the resistance forces before the invasion. Uh-huh. You're pretty sure Paul is the man you want.
2: Looks that way, yes, ma'am.
23: It's hard to believe. But there's a reason for it. I guess he took a lot of chances during the war. Must have changed him.
2: He hasn't changed. Further interrogation of Darlene Potter convinced us that she knew the suspect only as a friend. When we drove her home, she gave us a more recent snapshot of DeRoe. The next day, copies were made and distributed to radio patrol units. Frank and I went back to the hotel to make another check of the room to try and find something that might lead us to any of his friends or associates. We found a list of names and addresses under a desk blotter. The first four people that we talked to all told us the same thing. They said that the man known as Paul DeRoe was a private tutor for their children. The only address that any of them had for him was the hotel. At two of the homes, we were told he came to teach on Wednesdays. One party said he came on Saturdays, and the other one said he came on Tuesdays. 4:03 p.m. We identified ourselves and were admitted to a home on Chatham Drive by a Mrs. Grace Findlay.
13: Won't you, gentlemen, be seated?
2: Thank, Thank you. you very much.
13: Uh, what was it you wanted to see me about?
2: Oh, well, Miss Findlay, we'd like you to look at this picture and tell us if you recognize this man. Here you are
13: certainly. Why, yes, that's Paul I
2: Wonder if you'd mind telling us what you know about him.
13: Well, I'm not sure I understand just what you mean.
2: Well, is he a friend of the family?
13: Yes, in a way. He's the children's French teacher. Uh
2: Uh-huh.
13: He's not in trouble with the police, is he?
2: We'd like to talk to him. I hope it isn't serious. Well, it might be, Miss Finley.
13: Serious enough to have him put in jail? Might be. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He's been so wonderful with the children. Uh Uh-huh. He's the third teacher we've had. Somehow they never liked the others, but they're just crazy about Paul.
2: You're certain he's done something wrong We'd like to find him and get his side of the story. Now, do you have a home address for him?
13: Yes. Does he know you're looking for him?
2: We wouldn't know that, (laughs) ma'am. That's
13: strange. How's that? Well, I was thinking if you're looking for him and he knows it, it's odd he'd call here today.
2: You talked to him today?
13: Yes. Thursdays he gives the children their instructions. Yes, ma'am. He said he'd be here at 5 (laughs) o'clock.
2: With Mrs. Findley's permission, Frank drove our car into the garage, and then we waited for DeRoe to arrive. While we were waiting, Mrs. Findley told us that when DeRoe had applied for the job, he'd showed her several letters of recommendation from families in the East. Because of his intelligence and her children's instant liking for him, she hadn't made a check on his background. She went on to say that she had noticed him driving several different makes of cars, but she couldn't give us a description of any of them. 5.06 p.m., the front doorbell rang.
13: That must be him. I hope there's no trouble. All right,
2: you wait here, Miss Finley. All right. Don't worry about it. All right, hold it right there, Duro, police officers. This is hardly the reception expect. All right, move over. Put both hands up against the door. Come on, move. We use the same method. Right. Yeah, he's clean, Joe. I could have told you, gentlemen, that I'm not in the habit of coming to a client's home carrying a gun. Why, turn around and get your hands behind your back. Couldn't we dispense with the handcuffs? This is rather embarrassing. Well, you'll get used to it. I was thinking about the children. I don't want them to see me like this. You should have thought about that sooner. Better get the car, huh? Right. I imagine this is about the check I cashed. A few other things. I worked with the Americans during the war. That's so? I learned a good many things about them. Very resourceful, brilliant, and eager to help the less fortunate. You forgot one thing, didn't you? What's that? They don't like to be robbed. We contacted the office and had them send another team out to pick up the car DeRoe had driven and take it down to the police garage. On the way down to the city hall, the suspect told us he'd been in this country about six months. He refused to talk about anything except what a great country he thought America was. Frank went to check with DMV on the suspect's car, and I took the road to the interrogation room. It's wonderful. It's the only place in the world to live. Yeah, well, all right, Duro. We got the idea you're sold on this country. Now let's get on to cases and talk about the reason we're here. How about it? It might as well be now as later. All right, fine. You want to start by telling us what you did with this stuff? I spent the money. The books are in my room. What about the other things you stole? Oh, well, there must be some mistake. I didn't steal anything. Well, you cashed a Ford's check, didn't you? Yes, I admit that. And the check was stolen? It's possible, but I didn't take it. You expect us to buy that bureau? That's entirely up to you. Where'd you get it? If I said I found it, could you prove otherwise? That won't be necessary. We can nail you on a forgery wrap right now. That's what I had in mind. I have no desire to be connected with anything else. Well, you seem pretty anxious to pick up that tab. Well, it's only right. I took a chance and lost. I'm willing to settle for my mistake. Yeah, well, that's real big of you, but I got a hunch we'll be able to tag you with more than a 470. Yeah, so, let me see you, man. Yeah. What do you got? Well, I'm not sure now we got the right guy in the contract. What? I checked with DMV. The car DeRoe was driving is registered to a Seward car company. I called him. Yeah. They tell me he works for him. We continued to question DeRoe, but he refused to admit any knowledge of the burglaries and the car thefts. He was booked on suspicion of 470 PC and taken to the main jail. The next morning, the owner of the bookstore identified the suspect in a show-up. We questioned him again, but he failed to admit anything but the check forgery. 9.23 a.m. Frank and I returned to the office. You gotta hand it to the guy. He's cool. Yeah, but he's too ready to buy in on that 470.
12: Yeah. I'll check the book. All right.
10: Here's a number for you to call,
2: Joe. Is there any name on it? Yeah, a fellow named Eiler. Give any reason for the call? Nope. <laughs> Hello, I'd like to speak to Mr. Eiler, please. Mr. Sergeant Friday, Police Department. That's right. I see. All right, sir, we'll be right out. You want to give me that address? 347. Right, thank you. This fellow runs a garage, saw the spread on our suspect in the morning paper. Yeah? He says from the description they gave, DeRoe was in his garage. Uh huh. Brought a car in to be painted. Uh-huh. Out to the garage and when we showed Rose's picture to Frank Eilers he identified him as the man who had brought in a Nash sedan to be repainted we checked the engine number and found it listed as stolen we went back to the office I hear that FBI kickback did you read it? no I just picked it up Yeah, listen to this Paul J. Rose, alias Paul Dawson alias Peter Duncan true name Philip Paul Dorrance got much of a record? we'd have to take a day off to read it all hmm Served terms for burglary in GTA. He's been at all the best hotels. Joliet, Sing Sing, Atlanta. Born and raised in this country. What about that war record? Joliet, 1938 to 1946. How do you like that? Well, he sure went to a lot of trouble. Having his picture taken and that get-up and that phony certificate. The way that picture looked. All those trees in the countryside.
7: Sure looked like Holland to me, didn't it to you, Joe?
2: Well, that's our big trouble. What do you mean? We never been to Holland. He went back to the main jail and had the suspect brought to the interview room. He still denied any connection with the burglaries and the car thefts. 12.16 p.m.
1: With my war
2: record, I don't have to be subjected to this. Now, look, we got you made on the check, and it won't be hard to prove you stole that car. Your story falls apart like a $4 suit. I have great admiration for the Americans. Yeah, you've been telling us that. I managed to escape situations more difficult than this during the war. I was trained for it. Yeah, you told us Of course, there was some difference then. We were all on the same side and fighting for the same things. You know, you're doing a lot of talking, but you're not saying anything. I'll tell you what you want to know. You do that? Yes. Well, all right, go ahead. I will. But first, I'd like to tell you about the shoes. About what? Shoes. What about? I fought with the Dutch Underground. Now, for a man to fight, two things are important. Is that so? A gun and a good pair of shoes. Mm Mm-hmm. Many of us who wanted to fight had neither. One of your OSS men contacted us and said we would get them. And one night a plane came over and dropped containers by parachute. Yeah. The man kept his promise. We got guns, the fine carbines, and we got shoes. When daylight came, I looked at mine very closely. They had stamped on them, Made in America. Yeah. And that's when I made up my mind. You did? Yes, I decided that someday... I would come to the United States. Uh-huh. I knew if I wasn't killed, I'd come here. That's yeah, a wonderful story, isn't it? Yes, and I regret that I'll lose my chance to become a citizen. They may even deport me for this. No farther than the nearest jail. Now, please don't make light of my predicament. I admit I made this one Oh, mistake. come on, look. Settle down, will you? I can buy a better story than yours in any magazine. All right. I didn't want to do this. But I insist that you call the Dutch consul. They never heard of you. Well, there must be a mix-up of some sort. Somebody must know me. Yeah, sure. Every prison warden in the United States. You've got a record little reach from here to Holland, but that's the closest you've ever been. Your real name's Philip Dorrance. The only war you ever fought was in the prison library over the daily papers. You've been in and out of every joint in the country. Now, there's more. Do you want the rest of it? No, I guess that's enough, isn't it? I might as well admit it. I'm a burglar. I'm a car thief. You left one out. What? You're a liar.
12: Paul Michael Duro was tried and convicted of burglary in the second degree, three counts, grand theft auto, three counts, and forgery, one count. He received sentence as prescribed by law. Burglary in the second degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than one or more than 15 years grand theft auto is punishable by imprisonment for not more than 10 years. Forgery is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than one or more than 14 years. Dragnet,
2: the story of your
1: police force in action is a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service.
0: Dragnet, the big underground, an episode from a few days after Christmas in 1954. You heard it here on The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arrold-Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. In addition to entertaining us and moving us, one of the things old-time radio can do is give us a sense of life as it was actually lived way back when. In the summer of 1949, Richard Durham, the creator of the landmark series Destination Freedom, departed from his show's usual format of biography and history to concentrate on the alarming findings of a then-recent study of racial segregation here, In Washington, D.C. It's a tribute to Mr. Durham's talent that he managed to turn a committee report into a compelling, dramatic radio script, as we'll hear right now. From August 28, 1949, and NBC station WMAQ in Chicago, it's called Segregation Incorporated, from the series Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom. (laughs)
2: Destination Freedom, dramatizations of the great democratic traditions of the Negro people is brought to you by station WMAQ as a part of the pageant of history and of America's own Destination Freedom. Today, Destination Freedom departs from its regular format to bring you one of the most vital human rights reports to be made in this decade. It is a carefully documented report by a committee of prominent American educators, churchmen, jurists, business and civic leaders. In a factual presentation of the work of the National Committee on Segregation in the Nation's Capital, Destination Freedom brings you the chapter entitled Segregation Incorporated. In this program there are no invented scenes or imaginary incidents. Segregation Incorporated is strictly non-fictional. The stage for today's chapter is set along the banks of the beautiful Potomac, a site picked by George Washington as the capital of our country, a site seen yearly by millions of visitors from all over the country and from overseas. The steel and granite government buildings, the marble monuments of Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln are shrines symbolizing the meaning of America. And by plane, by train, by bus, by car, citizens come from all over America, the world, to get a brighter sense of what America stands for. They visit the gallery, at the buildings, read the inscriptions, alone or touring in groups like this one.
24: This is it, folks. The greatest capital on anybody's earth. Right over there is the U.S. East, where the money stays. And uh, right over there, if you stand up, you can see the White House where the president is right there
2: Suppose right here, before this cross-section of America, we stop the bus and tap the shoulder of the Barker and point out to his tourists another side of the Washington story.
24: Look, uh, there's nothing about Washington I don't know been a guide for 20 years. I point out everything. I don't miss
2: a thing.
3: This is
2: the only major capital in the world where one-fourth of its people cannot eat in a public restaurant. And the only capital in the world where race segregation is supported by the government.
24: All right. All right. All right. I know all about that. I know that. There's things I don't tell tourists. Sure. way I figure it, no use letting strangers see what they don't ask for. Some things you just keep secret.
2: Is Washington's segregation a secret? Listen to this letter from an official of Denmark who spent several months in Washington on a
22: mission for his king. Dear friends in America, Before coming to your country, I had of course heard about your racial system. And I remember being mildly puzzled by this inconsistency in your democratic ideas. But I'm afraid I was quite unprepared for what I saw in Washington. On the streets and sidewalks, I noticed both races mingled freely. But when I went to eat my first meal in a Washington drugstore,
25: Yeah, what's yours. Uh,
22: bacon and eggs, please.
25: Adam and Eve are a rat.
22: next. Uh, this gentleman behind me is next, I believe. What gentleman?
26: I suppose it's me. I'd like a cup of coffee and some, some of these.
25: in your head. We don't serve Negroes in here, you know us. Now, come on. Make room for the customer.
26: Listen, I'm hungry. I haven't got time
25: to argue. I've got the to... argument's over. Or do I have to call in that cop to convince you? All right, now. Next? Oh, here's your bacon and eggs,
22: mister.
3: Oh,
25: what's the matter? You don't want it?
22: Uh, uh, I, I'm afraid not. Here's the money.
25: Oh, what's the matter? They're fresh eggs. Your stomach
22: upset? Yes, yes. My, my stomach is very upset. Very
25: upset, oh, all these, some of them foreigners sure are finicky.
3: Next,
22: I was sick because this reminded me of the discrimination I had seen in my Denmark during all the, the occupation, only and there was another race involved. I remember the terror that went with it. I was confused. I'd read your bill of rights. I'd heard your representatives in the United Nations demand freedom for citizens in Greece and Romania, Bulgaria. But in Washington... Well, I visited your government offices in the weeks that followed. They seemed much like my own state offices in Denmark. Until I noticed that one group of people were employed almost solely in manual capacities. Messengers, law clerks, porters in some departments, not at all. These were the Negroes. In my hotel, I noticed that no Negroes dined at the restaurants or were allowed to rent rooms. And for the first time in my life, I saw a sign on the door of a washroom that said... For white only. And another that said... For colored... It is no exaggeration to say that most of our people who come to your capital go home with what you call a bad taste in their mouth. In real humility, I say that I do believe you Americans should decide your destiny in accordance with your own wishes. But is Washington a good salesman for democracy?
26: Yes, every incident and every court decision affecting Negro rights in this country speaks directly to a world audience that is only
2: one-third white. They look at Washington across the footlights of the American stage. And even if we wished, we could not dim the lights nor lower the curtain. September 13, 1948. On this date there was a meeting held by the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Constitution Hall. Diplomats, attachés, representatives from 40 countries were being seated. The President of the United States was expected to speak. If it had been broadcast, it might have sounded like this.
24: We're broadcasting from Constitution Hall, ladies and gentlemen. Down below my booth is one of the greatest gatherings of friendly guests seen in Washington in a long time. I believe I see the Ethiopian minister. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. There's some disturbance down there. The usher is motioning to the Ethiopian minister to take a seat at the rear of the auditorium. The minister is leaving his seat, walking towards the back. No, he's walking out altogether. I don't know what happened, but I see the president about to speak. We'll switch you to the rostrum.
2: No one seemed to know what happened. And before an investigation could be made, the following note was received by the State Department.
27: The Ethiopian government considers the offense to its accredited representative as grave and prone to create serious implications, especially so because the offense occurred in a public place and in the presence of the President of the United States.
2: Is segregation a secret? To the hundreds of dark-skinned diplomats and officials from Asiatic and Latin American countries who visit Washington as a part of their job, this secret is open knowledge Case 98, an influential Puerto Rican senator who comes to Washington frequently and who once had to sleep couch in the resident commissioner's office because the hotels wouldn't house him. Case 134, that of a devout Christian from Panama who came into a church in Washington, and as he knelt at prayer, a clergyman handed him a slip of paper and said, We have special churches for Negroes in
22: Washington. On the back of that paper, you will find the address of one. is isn't this? is for white Christians, my son. Go to the address on the back of the paper, and you'll be welcome there, not here.
2: Inside many of the largest churches in Washington, visitors are made unwelcome. Segregation is even the public policy in Washington of such Christian organizations as the YMCA, who insist that dark-skinned guests be housed in segregated branches. This has made Washington the only capital in the world where it is necessary to chaperone foreign diplomats to protect them from insult because of their color. Is segregation a secret? Not to the quarter of a million Negroes who are born here. Come here and die here and call it home.
26: My name is Sergeant Baker. You may not have heard of it. It doesn't matter. What matters is what happened when I came home on leave for my Army Air Corps unit. It was during the war... I was a picture playing downtown on military aviation. My lawyer had asked me to see it. I went to the theater. The manager stopped me.
24: What do you want here, boy? Sergeants of the United States Army are not referred to as boy, Mister. You can't come in this theater. We don't have a segregation balcony yet. Say, aren't you that Baker boy used to run up and down Pennsylvania Avenue in short pants? I thought I recognized you, even in that uniform. <laughs> you sure have grown, boy. I'm sorry you haven't. Well, 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 welcome home, Baker. See by them pads on your arm, you've been to France,
3: uh,
24: Italy, Germany. <laughs> you've been around, son. Come back next month when my segregation balcony's fixed. You're welcome anytime then. Sure glad to see you safe in Washington, boy. Ain't no place like
3: it, is there?
26: In
2: a way, there isn't. The exclusive policy of Washington theaters and auditoriums have brought the capital and the country much notoriety. When the Daughters of the American Revolution refused to permit the use of Constitution Hall for a concert by Marian Anderson,
26: every capital in the world heard about it.
2: And a few people did something about it. When Negro war veterans like Sergeant Baker were barred from seeing the play Joan of Lorraine at Listener Auditorium in the fall of 1946, the starring actress stood on the stage and told her audience.
25: I heard a few days ago that no Negro can come into this theater, and in the capital city too. Before I came to America, I did not know there was any place where colored people could not come in. Until this is a free city, I shall never play in it again.
2: Those were the words of Ingrid Bergman. And in 1948, the Actors' Equity Association voted to stay away from the theaters in Washington until race discrimination ended. There are, nevertheless, a quarter of a million American citizens of Negro descent who live here along the Potomac River and cannot stay away until discrimination is ended. When did it start? In the 19th century, thousands of Negroes and white people from surrounding states lived together in the District of Columbia on a basis of equality and respect. One old Washingtonian recalls, 15th the New York Avenue,
22: now a part of the downtown area, where no Negro can see a show or sit down to eat, was once owned by old Alfred Lee, a colored feed dealer who bought it from the British Embassy. Colored folks lived pretty near any place in Washington in them days. You see, segregation is a new idea. You know, some folks say that time is not right for colored people to have equal rights as citizens in the Capitol. But shucks, way back in 1872, the district had a law that gave all citizens equal rights in public places. Rights to penalties for the violators, too. Sure, We've gone backwards, not forwards. Yeah, sometimes I wonder whatever became of
2: that law. That law mysteriously disappeared from the compiled statutes of the District of Columbia. There is no record of its repeal. But the record of what segregation has done to the city of the Cherry Blossom Festival can be seen in its slums. Washington has the ugliest slums in the nation. In the words of Agnes E. Meyer of the Washington Post, February 6, 1944.
25: In my journey to the war centers, I have visited the worst possible housing. But not in the Negro slums of Detroit. Not even in the southern cities have I seen human beings subjected to such unalleviated wretchedness as in the alleys of our own city of Washington.
2: And as a result of this segregation... The odds against Negroes in Washington are calculated in cold figures. Only 30% of the residents of the District of Columbia are Negroes. Yet, Negroes occupy 70% of the slum housing and have 69% of the felony arrests. In 1944, a Negro in Washington was more than four times as likely to die from tuberculosis as a white resident and almost twice as likely to die from TB as a Negro living elsewhere. In 1946... The incidence of infant mortality among Negroes was twice that of whites, and Negro mothers were six times as likely to die as white mothers. On the maps and charts of Washington sociologists, the segregated areas rate high in death and disease and juvenile crime.
26: Who is responsible
2: for these segregated areas? At a meeting of the Real Estate Board in 1948, a vote was taken on its Code of Ethics, a code in practice for a half century. Among the active members of this board are 25 banks, insurance and title companies, and building and loan associations. The vote is taken. The chair is ready to recognize the count.
24: Uh, The vote in favor of reaffirming our Code of Ethics is 18 in favor... One
3: again.
24: <laughs> and will the secretary please read section 5, article 15, of the code?
25: Uh, no property in a white section of Washington should ever be sold, rented, advertised, or offered to colored people by board members. In case of doubt, advice from the public affairs committee should be obtained.
2: The business of reaffirming segregation finished. The gentlemen go to their offices to practice what they preach to bar Negroes from most of the growing cities and to confine them tighter and tighter in racial ghettos. Under their code of ethics, they have acted jointly to deprive colored citizens of their equal right to purchase, lease, sell, and hold property. On what grounds, a board member was asked? Well, everybody knows Negroes depreciate property values. The National Association of Real Estate Boards says this is not true. In a survey published by the association, it is reported that in the overwhelming majority of cases, Property values not only don't decline with Negro tenants, but often go up.
27: Uh, Yes, 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 I I know that. The truth is, I don't have anything against Negro tenants, but uh, some realtors and some of the investment people here in Washington like to build up exclusive neighborhoods. There's money in exclusiveness. You keep out Jews here, Catholics over there, Mexicans here, and Negroes everywhere, and you get what you call a select neighborhood. Naturally, being exclusive, they can call for exclusive prices. That makes segregation good business. But (laughs) that's only half the business. The other half pays off even better. Over in the Negro neighborhood, you see, most of the people who cause these restricted deals own property over there. You keep squeezing the Negroes in tighter and tighter. The loan associations won't loan them money so they can buy out of the area. And, well, you've heard of the good old law of supply and demand, haven't you? Operating all the time. They get wonderful prices for slum housing over in the Negro area. Uh, Understand? Segregation to some of us is just a matter of (laughs) business.
2: Just a matter of business that pays off in death and misery and disease and the denial of dignity to a quarter of a million humans in Washington, D.C., And as long as there is profit in segregation, the racket goes on. A racket growing not by accident, but by plot and plan by many who declare...
22: Race segregation here in Washington is a natural state, and certain groups which agitate against it are unscrupulous and un-American.
2: It might surprise the people we liberated from Nazi ghettos to know that race segregation is defended as both natural and American by the business and property interests that dominate the nation's capital. But the only leaders who call segregation natural are those who... In Washington, as the race lines are drawn tighter, a kind of no-man's land is growing up between the peoples in the capital. But in those few blocks where white and Negroes live side by side, the committee found a matter-of-fact friendliness between the races. And one white southerner, Case N-46, said of her Negro neighbor...
25: They've been living beside us for six years now. They take a good interest in their place. We say hello and chat all the time. Her kids are noisy at times, but so's mine, I guess.
2: It is not in the field of spontaneous human relationships that trouble occurs in Washington, but on a high policy level where segregation of the Negro is planned as a matter of business. And the results of the planning have been in tension and riots. Tension caused by the compression of people in poverty-shocked communities. And in
26: the words of the biennial report of the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America, 1946, segregation increases and accentuates racial tensions. It is worth noting that race riots in this country have seldom occurred in the neighborhoods with a racially mixed population. Our worst riots have occurred along the borders of tightly segregated areas. Instead
2: of producing good racial relations, segregation creates a deep sense of frustration and resentment. Organizers of Segregation Incorporated do not wait for the victims to grow up
26: before they split them apart. In Washington, segregation begins in kindergarten.
2: Along the streets of the nation's capital, little children will soon head back to school. The white children to schools designated for white. The colored children to schools designated for Negroes, passing each other on the way. They cannot go into the same school buildings. They cannot study together. They cannot play together. Nor can they salute the flag together. And the schools of the colored children are run down and overcrowded. In the school year 1946-47, the operation of Negro schools received nearly 25% less per capita than white schools. Around here in Washington
22: and in the South, they say separate but equal facilities. But nobody ever saw facilities that were separate and equal. Segregation implies a superior-inferior relationship. Otherwise, there'd be no segregation.
2: And both Negro and white teachers agree that by the time their pupils reach the third grade, they're conscious of their systematic separation. In this way, they learn about America. Beyond the public schools, in the universities in Washington where no Negroes are admitted, segregation digs its trenches. ...divides the youth according to doctrines of blood and skin... ...and returns the racial product to society equipped with an academic degree. Yet, the public school system has been the great instrument... ...by which we hope to overcome social and economic stigmas... ...and give each American an equal chance to make good. It has been the great unifying principle of the republic. But from the schoolroom and into the workshop. Segregation moves with the men and women in Washington. Herein is modern human bondage. For when a quarter of the population is barred from certain jobs because of its race, it must take what is left as surely as if it were condemned to slavery. In the capital city, a Negro cannot get a job as a meter reader, a building inspector, a weights and measures inspector, nor a guard in a jail. No Negro will be accepted for work above a menial level in the office of the Vehicles and Traffic Department or the Engineer's Office or the Purchasing Office. Yet the proportion of Negroes who work for a living in Washington is higher than for whites. They work longer hours and go to work at an earlier age. The committee finds that behind the system of segregation in the District of Columbia schools, jobs, and housing is the full majesty of the United States government. Yes, The main segregators in employment are the government, agencies, bureaus, departments, and sections. The Ram Act of 1940, the civil service regulations, and a series of presidential executive orders all forbid racial discrimination in federal employment. Yet discrimination prevails as a matter of accepted practice. The main department discriminating against Negroes is the State Department. One high-ranking officer summed up the department's attitude in Document 302.
22: The attitude is not Southern reactionary or plain Negro-hating, but rather the conservatism you find on the main line or in the back bay. I suppose it's a matter of the State Department regarding Negroes without any questioning at all as naturally belonging in the servant sort of role.
2: The only Negro who did rise to a key position in the State Department tells why he recently turned down the Washington job. Dr. Ralph Bunch said, Frankly,
26: I turned down the job because I didn't want to live in Washington again. I've been refused service in Washington public places so many times that I never knew what to expect. And when one of my foreign friends asked the management of a hotel if they would object to my presence, they said yes even though I was a State Department man. No, I don't think I'd live in Washington again, even to be Assistant Secretary of State.
2: And segregation still moves like a plague over the city and down into the hospitals where doctors segregate patients and doctors segregate doctors. In this case... Reported by Joseph Dean Lohman of the University of Chicago lies the real meaning of race segregation in an American hospital. It was on the streets of Washington
24: that the cab came screaming around the corner and pulled up in front of a Washington hospital. It was a cold winter morning in 1945. The driver darted up the steps. The clerk saw him. Is something wrong, mister? Yeah, there's a young lady outside my
26: cab. She's in labor. She's looking at a doctor right away. Emergency, nurse. Nurse, that's Phillips' Emergency.
24: God, I thought I wouldn't make it in time. Her husband's out there with her. I'm Did You call for emergency. Yeah, yes. Outside, Doctor Phillips in a cab, a woman in labor. Hurry.
26: Oh yes, of course.
24: Hey, you stay here, Cabby. Uh, They'll take care of her. Help me fill out these forms. Uh, her name? Oh, I'm not sure. You see, I was cruising by and I heard someone call, and
26: I stopped. It was right in the 100 block on Bryant Street, Northwest. Bryant Street. Yeah. She's a Negro. She's in labor.
24: Sorry. This hospital has strict orders not to admit. Me, what are you talking it? about? Uh,
26: Kirk? I examined the patient. She is in labor, but, well, because of the rules, I can't bring her in.
24: Well, that's what I've been trying to tell this guy. Driver, try to take her over to the city hospital before anything. time to... for that. You know it. Well, I'll get you a sheet and you can cover her with that until you get them over to city hospital.
2: It happened in Washington, 1945. For science stops, where segregation starts. In Washington, Negro doctors are barred from the district's medical association and from the American Medical Society. In fact, there is only one hospital in the city to which a Negro physician can take a private patient.
26: This segregation in medicine endangers
2: the health of the nation as segregation in housing and jobs and education endangers the peace and security of Americans at home. It was not always this way in
26: Washington. Once the District of Columbia had one of the best civil rights
2: laws in existence, and its citizens knew no segregation. Washington was not always the capital of white supremacy. The federal government did not always ally itself with the segregationists. Now, it's a different capital. Now, when the public schools of the capital are used to divide citizens on racial lines, to perpetuate inequalities, to increase them and worse to justify them, then the time has come to consider what kind of America we want to build in the future. Here in Washington, the city that symbolizes the American way of life is where a stand must be made for equality and truth. How can we Americans make our capital city into the model of what we, as a people, and a nation, profess to be? By enforcing existing legislation certainly by creating new laws
22: if need be but first to be determined that Washington and its people shall not be divided by a master race theory and that liberty and justice shall be possible and shall be enforced
2: the physical ghettos are obvious but the ghettos of the spirit have darker passages ...and extend into the minds of educators, doctors, legislators, and divines. This is the darkness where men step on each other and take pride in doing so. The sickness that wounds the soul of our nation and lessens the meaning of its life. In the nation's capital, we must mean what we say... ...and give people of all races and colors an equal chance to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness... We must see to it that all children can stand together. and They
27: look to the stars and stripes and say,
22: I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible, with liberty
27: and justice for all.
2: You have just heard Destination Freedom's presentation of Segregation Incorporated, a documented report by the Committee Against Segregation in the nation's capital. Destination Freedom is written by Richard Durham, produced by Homer Heck and directed by Dick Loughran. The creators on today's program were Tony Parrish and Bob McKee. Others in the cast were Janice Kingslow, Dean Olmquist, Oscar Brown Jr., George Kluge, and Fred Pinkard. Special music was composed by Emil Soderstrom and played by Elwin Owen and Roy Graham. Our technician was Al Johnson. Sound effects by Cliff Mueller. This is Charles Chan inviting you to be with us again next week when Destination Freedom will tell the story of the great Reconstruction hero from Mississippi and the only Negro ever to serve in the United States Senate, Blanche K. Bruce.
0: This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Segregation Incorporated from Destination Freedom in the summer of 1949. The committee report the show dramatized was not without its effect. As we close African American History Month, we want to remember that within months of that 1949 study, the civil rights activist Mary Church Terrell took action to end segregation in D.C.'s restaurants, and in 1953, a year before its Brown v. Topeka decision, the Supreme Court's ruling... Did just that. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We often hear the actor Jeff Chandler doing comedy on this show in his role as Philip Boynton, the bashful biology teacher on Our Miss Brooks. But Mr. Chandler had started out in radio mostly in dramatic roles on shows like Suspense and the Lux Radio Theater, sometimes billed as Ira Grossel, his real name. And at almost the same moment that he started appearing on Our Miss Brooks, he began starring in the revival of a series based on Brett Halliday's detective, Michael Shane. Even after Jeff Chandler became a big Oscar-nominated movie star, he continued to appear on radio, a medium he much preferred. He once said, Radio actors have to make their roles come alive, and they only have their voices with which to do it. But in pictures, the actor is only a small part of the performance. Let's hear him make a role come alive right now. In The Case of the Borrowed Heirlooms, it's a story from September 24, 1949, the Armed Forces Radio Service, and the syndicated series The New Adventures of Michael Shane. <laughs>
6: It's skidding across the wet, slippery road. I tried to straighten it out, but I couldn't. After the hit on the head and the clip on the chin, this was one too many. Yeah, this is a third strike on little Mike, and I went out.
10: The New Adventures of Michael Shane, Private Detective, starring Jeff Chandler. Michael Shane, reckless redheaded Irishman, is back again in his old haunts in New Orleans. This is your director, Bill Russo, inviting you to listen to another transcribed episode, which we call The Case of the Borrowed Heirloom.
6: Nurse. Oh, nurse. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm looking for Clarence Drake's room. I'm Mike Shane.
23: Oh, yes, Mr. Shane. Mr. Drake is expecting you. His room's right down the corner, if you'll follow me.
6: Uh, look, I don't know this Mr. Drake. Have you any idea why he sent for me?
28: Well, no. He asked me to telephone a private detective for him. I found your name in the directory, so I called you.
6: Oh, thanks. Mr. Drake pretty sick?
28: Oh, no. No, he tripped. He fell down the stairs at his home two days ago, so his wife thought it best that he'd be brought here to the hospital for observation. This is Mr. Drake's room on the left.
6: Okay, thanks.
3: Come
6: in. Come in. Mr. Clarence Drake? Yes, yes, indeed. You're my for Shane? Yeah, that's right. Good. Good to got here very promptly, Mr. Shane. Yeah. Uh, do you mind if I smoke? Oh, not at all.
22: Hmm, nice ladder. Oh, thanks. Uh, Mr. Shane, I want you to run an errand for me. Very important, Aaron. Oh? Yes. Pull open the drawer on that bed table, please. Okay. You see those keys? Mm Mm-hmm. The big one fits a strong box, which is building to the floor under my bed at home. Strong box? Yes. Now, I've written the address on this piece of paper. Hmm. That's out in the country ways, huh? I want you to go out there right away. Tell my wife I sent you. Have a show to my bedroom, and then... But first, be sure you're alone in
2: my room. Alone? Oh, now look, what's this all Let me finish, Mr. Shane. Go ahead. Now unlock the strong box. In it you'll find a large black
20: leather jewel case. Bring the case back to me. What's
6: in the leather case, Mr. Drake? Shh, 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 shh. Huh? Not so loud. Well, now, look, what's all this hocus-pocus routine about? What's in the leather case? Mr.
20: Shane, please, not so loud. I can't take any chances. Oh, now,
6: look, if you're going to hire me, you better tell me what's in this mystery satchel. I'm going to be lugging around.
22: All right, all right. But first, are you sure we're alone here?
6: Alone? Look, you, you don't see anyone else wandering around the room, do you? Nevertheless, I must be sure. Out in the hall. Now, look, there's no one here... Hi- Please do as I say, Mr. Shane. Okay, okay. There, you satisfied now? Yes. Okay, what's in the leather case, Mr. Drake? Lean over my bed. Oh, for crying out of... Okay. Now, what's in the leather case? Nothing.
20: What? It's empty, Mr. Shane. It's empty.
10: In a moment, we'll return to the new adventures of Michael Shane and the case of the borrowed heirlooms.
6: Well, just about the time I figure I'm through being surprised at anything, I get a surprise. Like 60-year-old Clarence Drake telling me the jewel case he was sending me out to his house to get was empty. I was to bring it back to his hospital room and report everything that happened. Well, the whole deal sounded a little phony, but at least it was a deal, which was more than i would had all week. So, an hour later, about 8 p.m., I was pushing the doorbell at the address Drake gave me. A gloomy old two-story house in the country. After a while, a woman opened the door. She was about 55, I guess, and her face was just as gloomy and forbidding as the house. Yes? Uh... Mrs. Drake?
28: No. Mrs. Lesperds,
6: the housekeeper. Oh. Well, well, look, I'm Mike Shane. Mr. Drake sent me out here. Why? To get something of his and take it to him, okay? What is it? Oh, now, look, if it's all the same to you, I'll talk to Mr. Drake's wife. Come in. Pleasant woman. I followed her down the hall, and then she motioned me into a room on the right. I went in and waited. Like the rest of the house, this room looked tired and depressed. I stood looking out the window for a few minutes, and then I could feel someone staring at me. I turned around. There, standing in the doorway, was a woman about 30. Beautiful in an insolent sort of way. Hello. Yeah. Hello.
11: I'm Lydia Drake. Oh? Mrs. Clarence,
6: Yep. You mean you're Mr. Drake's wife?
11: What else? Well, go ahead. Hmm? Say it. Say what? What you thinking? What I'm... Sure, thinking. young wife, old husband. She must have married him for his money. Look, Mrs. Drake, I'm sure Married him for his money, sure. Take a look around you, Mr. Shane. This shabby room, the whole dilapidated, beaten-down house. Doesn't it look like we're just busting out all over with money, doesn't it?
6: Look, Mrs. Drake, I was surprised that you were so young. That's all. As for why you married Mr. Drake, I'm sure that's none of my business. At any rate, I hadn't thought much about it one way or the other. I know.
11: I know, I'm sorry. I'm sick and tired of hearing people talk about me. Watching the expression in their eyes when they look at me. They can't understand someone marrying a man like Mr. Drake because he was kind to her when when she was his secretary. Because she was lonely. Oh, what does it matter? Why am I blitting it all out to you?
6: I don't know. You used to work for Mr. Drake, huh?
11: Yes, he retired two years ago. We were married shortly after that.
6: I see. Oh, um, cigarette? Thanks. Hmm, thought I had a light of here
2: somewhere.
11: Lydia! Oh, Lydia! In here, George.
2: Lydia, I thought you were going to... Oh, sorry. Didn't know we... you had company. This is Mr. Shane, George. Hello. Let me give you a light, Lydia.
11: Thanks. George Hannah's Mr. Shane. He rents a room here.
2: Oh, how are you?
11: Have to make ends meet some way.
2: You see, Shane, I'm the chief source of income for Mr. and Mrs. Drake. And in return, they give me a fairly decent room and the attic, which I have made over into a study. Uh, George, I'm sure Mr. Shane isn't interested Well, in I don't it. be too sure, Lydia. After all, most people are interested in the fact that I'm writing a book. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, some people seem to be extremely interested in your very charming housekeeper, Mrs. Lesperance.
11: Do you know how I feel about
28: Mrs. Lesperance, George? I believe I heard my name mentioned. Does somebody want me?
29: My dear Mrs. Lesprince, I'm quite certain nobody wants you. George.
28: Your humor matches the rest of your personality completely, Mr. Harris. That's enough, Mrs. Lesprince.
11: I'm sure Mr. Shane has better things to do than listen to this.
6: Well, as a matter of fact, uh, I...
11: Incidentally, Mr. Shane, I'm still not quite clear as to what you want. I think Mrs. Lesprince said Clarence, my husband, sent you?
6: Uh, Yeah, yeah. He wanted me to get something out of his room and take it to him at the hospital.
11: Oh, what was it?
6: Why. uh... A leather case.
11: A leather case. I see.
6: So if you'll show me to his room, I... Mr.
11: Drake's room's at the head of the stairs, Mr. Shane. Go right on up.
6: Charming little group. Well, I found the leather case in Drake's room. Yeah, it was empty, all right. I still couldn't figure out why Drake had sent me after it. I rearranged the furniture and put the leather case under my arm. And then I went downstairs. Oh, Mrs. Drake, I'm leaving now. Mrs. Drake? Mrs. Drake, where are you? Hmm. Mrs. Lesperance? Mrs. Lesperance? What goes here? George! George! There was no answer from any of them. I poked around the downstairs rooms for a couple of minutes, but I couldn't find anyone. So I went outside. A light rain was falling. I started down the path toward my car, and then as I rounded a clump of bushes, a stick lashed out and caught me full on the shins. The pain doubled me over. Before I could straighten up again, something heavy came down on the back of my neck, and I flopped face down in the mud. I lay there stunned for a few seconds. I could feel someone grab the leather case away from me. By the time I got to my feet, there was no one in sight. I was still a little bleary, and I knew I'd have no chance of catching whoever it was, so I started walking down the path again. I got to my car, got in, and started the motor. Before I could pull away, a rugged looking chance loomed up fast beside the car and jerked the door open. Get out. Hey, hey, what's your big idea? I said
2: get out. Get your hands off of me. Okay, you get out the hard way.
6: Now, now cut it out.
2: Now, let's have it. Have what? The leather case. Who are you? That doesn't matter. Let's have that case. Oh,
6: look, Abe. Are you the guy that clipped me a couple of minutes ago? What are you talking
2: about? Because if you are, you ought to
6: know I don't have the case anymore. And if you are, I got a couple of things to settle with you right now.
2: Don't stall around, stupid. Let's have that case. I told you I don't have it. Okay. Okay, bright boy. Okay. Fish rubbed me back against
6: the car, and he came at me. I put everything I had into a left hook, and I connected He bounced back a couple of yards and went down. Then I saw him fishing around in his pocket. I figured he was going for a gun. I also figured this was no place to be any longer. I dug out fast and I didn't look back. I was on a side road leading to the highway. I made a sharp turn and then I eased up a little man out of nowhere rode a dark sedan. It came at my car fast. Before I knew what was happening, the sedan sideswiped me. My car started skidding across a wet, slippery road. I tried to straighten it out, but I couldn't. I, I spotted a tree by the side of the road. My car was headed straight for it. I twisted the steering wheel again. No use. The side of my car crashed into the tree and bounced back. It snapped my head like a whip. Waves of blackness started flooding over me. I, I tried to fight him back. But after they hit on their head and the clip on their chin, this one was one too many. Yeah, this was the third strike on little Mike. And I went out.
10: In a moment, we'll return to the new adventures of Michael Shane and the case of the borrowed heirlooms. Ah! It all started when old
6: Clarence Drake, who was recuperating in the hospital from a fall, hired me to go to his house in the country and bring back an empty leather jewel case. I went out there and met his wife Lydia, the housekeeper Mrs. Lesperance, and a guy named George Hannes. Well, I got the empty jewel case out of Drake's bedroom, came downstairs and found the house empty. So I started down the path toward my car. Then a number of things started happening to me, all of them bad. One, I was rabbit punched and a leather case was lifted from me. Two, I tangled with a muscle man near my car. And three, I got away from him only to have a dog sedan sideswipe my car and send it into a tree. When I came to, I managed to get the car started. drove to the hospital and went up to Clarence Drake's room. Well, Mr. Shane, back already? Back already, Mr. Drake. You found my house all right? I found your house all right. Well, did anything happen? Did anything happen? Did anything happen, you ask? Why, you lunatic, I'll tell you what happened. I got hit on the shins. I got hit on the back of my head. I got hit on the jaw. Someone ran my car into a tree and knocked me out. And you ask me if anything happened.
2: Oh, that happened to you? Good. Good? Now, look, you look... It proves I was right.
6: Well, now, isn't that real nice to know? Right about what?
22: Someone is trying to get my jewels, Mr. Shane.
6: Oh, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You you mean you were just using me as as bait? Well, I... Oh, now I've seen everything. Of all the... Mr. Shane, please don't be angry. Oh, oh, no, I I should be delirious with joy, I suppose. I I should be happy for these lumps on my head
2: and my shins. I'm sorry about that, Mr. Shane. I really am. I didn't intend you should get hurt. Oh, well, it won't happen again, believe me. But, Mr.
8: Shane, you got to help me. Help you?
6: No, Drake, you're going to help me. Have you? Yeah. By never coming near me again.
8: No, no, no. Please, Mr.
6: Shane. Let me tell you about it. About myself. Okay, okay. Tell me your story, but I'm warning you it's not going to do you any good.
2: Mr. Shane, I was married once before. My first wife passed away three years ago. And, well, I don't like to speak ill of the departed, but the plain fact is she ruined me financially.
1: How do you mean?
22: She... Kept after me to buy jewelry for Mr. Shane. was an obsession with her.
2: She used to say she wanted them for heirlooms. Huh? Yeah. She was always insisting I take her to jewelry stores and buy things for her. I did.
22: Took all my money. After she died, I realized I was practically penniless. I've had a very hard time managing ever since.
6: Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Mr. Drake. Doesn't sound like such a problem to me... Still got the jewelry, haven't you? Yes. It's hidden in my bedroom at home. Why don't you sell the jewelry? I suppose
22: I could do that, but I'd rather starve first. What? Yes. Sounds insane to you, doesn't it? Yeah, a little. I know. I couldn't really expect anyone to understand it. But...
29: Well, my first wife wanted that jewelry to be kept as heirlooms, Mr. Shane, and... So as
22: badly as I need the money, I'd never sell the jewelry. Never. Because if that's what she wanted, well, that's what I want, too. Even though she ruined me, I loved her, Mr. Shane. Yeah. I
2: guess you did. Sue, won't you please help me? (sighs) Okay. Okay,
6: I'll help you, Mr. Drake. I was willing to admit I ought to have my head examined for sticking with Drake. But there was something about the little guy that had gotten to me all of a sudden. I drove back to the house in the country, parked my car, and started up the path. Then I stopped. The house was dark except for an irregular pinpoint of light that moved around in Drake's room upstairs. Somebody was in there with a flashlight. I started for the house, and then the flashlight went off. I I ran up to the front door, but it was locked. I went around to the back of the house... The door there was unlocked. I opened it and went in. There, standing just inside the door, was the room of George Hanna's. Well, Mr. Shane. That's right, George.
2: What are you doing here? Why, I live here, remember? Matter of fact, I was about to ask you what you're doing here.
6: Look, when I was out here to get that leather case earlier this evening, everybody around here disappeared all of a sudden. Where were you? Why, I went out for a walk. Yeah? You weren't by any chance the guy who clipped me in the shins and on the back of my neck, were you? Me? <laughs> Hardly, Jane Why would I do a thing like that? You could have had a reason Or maybe you were driving that sedan that sideswiped me
22: My, my, what an imagination
6: You still haven't told me what you're Not doing Not that it's any of your business, Junior But Mr. Drake sent me Oh, I see <laughs> Still running errands
2: for the old boy, hmm? Well, when I first moved in here He used to have me galloping around running foolish errands for him But I finally got wise to him. He's harmless, of course, but uh, just a little, shall we say, uh,
6: strange. That's interesting to know, George. Incidentally, Drake will be getting out of the hospital pretty soon. Oh?
2: Well, that's nice. It'll be good to have the old coot around again. I
21: sort of miss him.
6: Yeah, I'm sure you do. I'll see you later. I left George standing in the back hall and went toward the living room. There was a light on now, and Mrs. Drake was standing on the stairs.
11: You're back again, Mr. Shane.
6: I'm back again, Mrs. Drake.
11: What do you want this time?
6: I'm not sure yet.
11: Is that supposed to be a joke?
6: No, it isn't. Mr. Drake wanted me to just uh, sort of look around a little.
11: I see.
6: Uh, Incidentally, I didn't know until a little while ago that Mr. Drake had been married before. Yes. You, uh you his first wife?
11: Slightly, enough to dislike her thoroughly. Oh? Uh-huh. Charming woman apparently threw away just about all of Mr. Drake's money. Of course, this is no concern of yours, Mr. Shane.
6: Yeah, you're right.
11: Well, if Mr. Drake wants you to poke around the place, go ahead. Please be brief. I will. I'm going to bed. Hi. Night.
6: Good night. Hmm. Mrs.
11: Lesperance,
28: how
6: long have you been hiding behind that door?
28: I I wasn't hiding. Come on,
6: come on, don't give me that.
28: All right, I I was hiding. I was listening to you and Mrs. Drake.
6: Yeah? Now, look, just what's your angle in this deal, Mrs. Lesperance?
28: My angle?
6: Yeah, yeah, I got a strong hunch you're more than just a housekeeper around here. You know, maybe you're the one who's after Drake's jewelry.
28: That's right, Mr. Shane. Huh? I've been trying to get Mr. Drake's jewelry for a long time.
6: Well, I'll be. Look, maybe you're also the one who hit me over the head earlier tonight. Why, no. Or sideswiped my car. I don't
28: know what you're talking about, Mr. Shane. I must admit, I did hire a man to try to get the jewel case from you.
6: The big ape who jumped me at, at my car was your boy, huh? Yes. Okay, that clears up one little item anyway. But you better start talking right now, Mrs. Lesprince. I want a lot of answers from you.
28: Yes. I can't keep silent anymore. Even though I was sworn to secrecy. I must talk now.
6: Sworn to secrecy? What are you talking about?
28: I've been housekeeper here a good many years, Mr. Shane. I was here before the first Mrs. Drake died. And everything I've done has been done on her behalf.
6: Now, look, you're you're leaving me way behind. Let's start at the beginning.
28: All right, Mr. Shane. But not here. Come to my room, please. We can talk there. Oh.
6: I followed her to a room at the back of the house, and we had a little talk. It was a short talk, but very interesting. Afterward, I walked out the front door, slipped the night latch, and slammed the door behind me. I got in my car, gunned it a couple of times, and pulled away. Made the sharp turn onto the side road, and then I stopped. Then I got out of my car and walked back toward the house. I guess I'd been waiting about 15 minutes when I saw the flashlight again in Mr. Drake's room. I eased up to the house and in the front door, turned the knob to Drake's door softly and went in the room. Then I spotted a figure holding a flashlight in one hand and prying a panel loose with the other. Just as I came up behind him, he got the panel off. Reached in and pulled out a leather jewel case. I had a strong hunch this jewel case wasn't empty. Hello, George. (laughs) Shane. Finally found Drake's jewels, huh? How did you? So the old boy was off his trolley, huh? Maybe so, but not the way you think, Shane. Shane, maybe we can make a deal. I don't think so. Particularly after the way you rabbit punched me earlier tonight. Now let's have the jewels. No, I said let's have
11: them. I'll take the jewels, Mr. Shane.
6: Well, Mrs. Drake.
11: Yes,
6: Lydia.
7: Thank
11: heaven. Shut you... up, George. I need obvious to move. I've called the police.
29: Police. Lydia, are you out of your mind?
11: Of course not. It's very simple. I caught the two of you trying to rob the house. I'm turning you over to the police.
6: Mm, pretty neat. Lydia, if this is your idea of a joke... I think the lady means it, George. Why, you double-crossing... Yes, get back, <laughs> Now, look, George. Mrs. Drake, you
11: You too, Mr. Shane. Yes, I'm turning you both over to the police, and I think I can make the case stick. I'm certain they'll believe me when I say I caught you both red-handed. Lydia! I... Until the police get here. Let me assure you, this gun's loaded. I won't hesitate to use it, if necessary, on either or
13: both of you.
10: In a moment, we'll be back with the thrilling climax to tonight's Michael Shane adventure.
6: there I stood, with Mrs. Drake pointing a gun at me and at George, who was pretty obviously her ex-boyfriend right now. Lydia, you will... I
11: said shut up, George.
6: Are you by any chance the one who sideswiped my car earlier, Mrs. Drake?
11: Yes, I thought you had the jewels then. Later when George told me the case he'd taken from you was empty, I realized the jewels must still be here.
2: All this time you've been stringing me along while I tore this dump apart looking for the jewels, telling me what we were going to do when I found them. And all the while you were planning to double-cross me. Well, you won't
22: get away with it. Oh,
11: you're wrong, George. I will get away with it, because I've been smart.
6: I wouldn't be too sure
22: of that,
11: Mrs. Drake. Well, I am sure. Why do you think I married Clarence? Why do you think I stuck with him these two years? Because I knew he had the jewels and had them hidden somewhere. I knew I'd find them someday and get out of here. You see, gentlemen, it's all very legal this way. I'm Clarence's wife, you know. I have a right to the jewels, even though he never wanted me to find them. Now they're mine, and it's all very smart and very legal. Uh Uh-uh. What do you mean?
6: What you're getting is nothing, Mrs. Drake.
11: Mr. Shane, don't try to tell me the jewels aren't genuine.
6: Oh, they're genuine, all right. Take a look at them. Go ahead. They're beautiful. Yeah, and genuine. So genuine, they've still got the price tags on them. Price tags? Shane, I don't get it. Oh, it's really pretty simple. Drake told me his first wife spent all his money buying jewelry. It was really the other way around, you see. She spent all her money paying off for Drake to keep him out of trouble and out of jail.
11: Out of jail? What are you trying to say?
6: Drake is a kleptomaniac. A what? Yeah, he lifted all those jewels from various stores without their permission.
3: That's a lie.
6: Oh, no, it isn't. I got the whole story from Mrs. Lesbrance just a few minutes ago. Drake's first wife asked her just before she died to find the jewels and return them. I guess she figured that way Drake's name would be cleared and she could rest easier.
11: But what you say is true and... These are stolen jewels, and they... Then
6: they're going back to their rightful owners, and I'll take care of that.
21: No,
2: you won't, Mr. say Drake!
21: Clarence! Stop that gun, Lydia! Stop it!
6: Now give me the jewels. There. You know, Drake, up until I got the truth from Mrs. Lesprince, I was feeling sorry for you. The noble gent would
2: starve rather than sell his wife's heirlooms. So all this time, it's been you and George, Lydia. You and George after my jewels. Clarence, well, what are you... Oh, Drake! Drake, don't do that. You and George,
6: Lydia, after my jewel. Put down that gun, Drake. Get back, Shane. Get back. I lunged at him. Just as he pulled the trigger, my hand hit his arm. The slug was under my nose and into the wall. Then I twisted the gun away from him hard, and he just sort of collapsed after that. Well, cops arrived about then and took over. The cops, incidentally, that Lydia had called earlier... Very obliging of her, she discovered. And that's just about that. Except I got back my cigarette lighter that Drake had lifted from me. And now I'm waiting for the reward, though, on the jewelry. At least it'll be enough to have my car repaired. The next time anybody asks me to go get an empty jewel case for them, or any other fool thing like that, I'll... I'll... I'll probably do it. Uh...
10: director Bill Russo again. Our story is based on characters created by Brett Halliday and is written by Bob Wright. The music is composed and conducted by John Duffy and Michael Shane is portrayed by Jeff Chandler. The New Adventures of Michael Shane is a Don W. Sharp production. Transcribed in Hollywood and distributed exclusively by the Broadcaster's Guild.
0: How about that? The music was by John Duffy in that New Adventures of Michael Shane production. And I knew John Duffy, a highly respected musician and a real gentleman. He was a founder of Meet the Composer, which is now part of the organization New Music USA. Well, unbeknownst to me, it was John Duffy's music we heard in that story, The Case of the Borrowed Heirlooms, from the fall of 1949. It's the Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, where your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. Over the years... We featured quite a bit of the work of Ben Hecht, mostly adaptations of his plays and movie scripts. But Mr. Hecht, born on February 28th, today's date, in 1894, was a master of many forms, including novels and quite a few short stories, one of which we're about to hear in a radio version. During his lifetime, which ended in 1964... Ben Hecht was considered a leading figure in American letters. As we'll hear later tonight, he was a terrific radio writer, too. Right now, though, listen to an adaptation of a story by Mr. Hecht called The Marvelous Barastro. It comes from August 7, 1947, and an NBC series that featured the great actor Peter Lorre, Mystery in the Air.
2: Mystery in the Air, starring Peter Laurie.
29: Yes? You're Mr. Amos G. Hall, aren't you?
2: Yes, I am. Who are you?
29: I'm Barastro, the hypnotist and magician. He called me the marvelous Barastro.
2: What do you want? How did you get in my office?
29: I said I was a magician. I do such things.
10: Well, why have you come to see me?
29: Why? Cause you're a great lawyer, and, and I'll have need of your services soon. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Cause tonight I I shall commit a murder. <laughs>
2: Each week at this hour, Peter Lorre brings us the excitement of the great stories of the strange and unusual, of dark and compelling masterpieces culled from the four corners of world literature. Tonight, The Marvelous Barastro, by Ben Hecht. Mystery in the Air, starring Peter Lorre, brought to you
5: by Camel Cigarettes.
2: Famous criminal lawyer, Amos G. Hall, sits staring into the hypnotic eyes of the marvelous Barastro, who has just announced that tonight he will commit murder.
29: Yes, Mr. Hall, for for a long time, a long time, I have dreamed only one dream, to kill this man. Why? Who is he? Rico Sansoni. Have you heard of him? No, can't say that I have. Well, he... He's a great magician, a great hypnotist, yes, he he's clever. He's too clever. I've hunted him from country to country, from city to city, all over the world. Sometimes I've almost caught him. In London I, I only missed him by only two hours, but tonight tonight I shall meet him face to face.
22: You know where he is then? Right now?
29: Yes. Rico Sansoni is here in this city now. Tonight, he opens in his first stage performance. And I'll be there, waiting
2: for him. Hmm. Well, uh, apart from the, uh, legalistic aspects of the, uh, uh, case, uh, why do you want to murder this
29: man? Why, listen closely, Mr. Hall, and, and perhaps you'll know a part of my hate for this, for this fiend. Oh, it began some time ago... I was traveling with a small carnival through Eastern Europe. I cast horoscopes, I I read the future, I revealed the past, and conversed with the spirits. That is how I earned a meager living. Well, one night our carnival came to a village, oh, somewhere in Russia. Peasants and the villagers gathered around our tents and wagons and, and through a hole in a black box where I stood, I watched a crowd while a barker made his speed.
2: the
6: who speaks with the dead, tells the future,
2: reads the secrets of life. The Astro, who
29: and then, the past, then I saw her. She had a young and gentle face. She was beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. I I couldn't take my eyes away. And then, then to my indescribable joy, a a peasant led her in. And and I saw at once, the girl was blind.
2: This is my granddaughter,
22: Anna. She would like you to tell her fortune.
11: Can you tell my future?
29: Mm, Yes, I... Yes, Anna, I can.
20: Will it be a happy one,
29: my future? Well, show me your hand, and and I'll tell you.
21: Here.
29: I took her hand, and suddenly uh, I felt a chill. I, I could hear the voices. I could hear and and fear. A great fear gripped me. But but the girl's beautiful, sightless eyes. They were so full of hope and faith. I I couldn't. I, I just couldn't tell her the truth. Spirits promise you great happiness, Anna.
11: Oh, thank you.
29: Yes, your, your hands will touch beautiful things and and love and great happiness await you.
13: Oh, thank you, sir. Oh, thank you, thank you.
29: That was the beginning... Her face never left me that night, and I couldn't sleep. The next morning, I looked for her, and I found her. We walked through the hills, and and she spoke of the trees she could not see.
20: I call that tree lullaby, because it sings when it sways in the wind. Yes. And this other I call prayer. They told me its branches open toward heaven.
29: With her that whole day, and the next, and the next, and we walked often in the hills and the forest, and she knew every turn in a path. We were in love, and, and when it came time for the carnival to move on, I asked Anna to come with me as my wife.
23: You make me very happy, Gregor.
13: I could live only with you. I love you with all my heart.
29: And I love you with all my heart, Anna. And I'll care for you and I'll protect you.
13: And you'll teach me, Gregor. You'll teach me to see. To see? One doesn't need eyes to
20: see as you do.
29: No, one does not.
20: Oh, please, Gregor, teach me to see beyond the horizon. Mm. Please teach me to see as you see.
29: Yes, Anna. My sweet little Anna. Anna. <laughs> In the day we were married, we rode together in a gilded wagon, and, and the vows were taken under clear sky. But immediately after, the sky suddenly changed. I realized what I had done. It was I, it was I who was carrying out the terrible message of the stars, for it was I that fate had selected to destroy her. From that moment on, I was haunted. One evening, it was less than a month later, I I stood in a black box outside my tent, and I knew it had come. That graceful, smiling man who stood before the tent, he, he was studying Anna. Not once did he take his eyes from her.
2: Hey, you, you, why do you stare at her? Let go of my eye. I don't want you to stare at her. Who are you? That
29: makes no difference. She's my wife.
2: I most humbly beg your pardon, sir. Mm. You see, I was admiring your wife. Mm. Uh, Allow me to introduce myself. I'm Rico Sansone, the hypnotist and magician. Mm. I'm going on a world tour soon, and I'd hoped she could join me as my assistant. I feel she has remarkable psychic powers. She is blind.
29: I apologize doubly for my seeming forwardness. Oh, I knew. I knew he sensed the ominous shadows around her as I did. But, but then he smiled and, and I was disarmed. And, and soon I became interested in his talk. He, he talked like a friend. He flattered me about my knowledge of the secrets of our profession. I noticed you performed a disappearing cage trick, Balastro. Yes, I do. A most difficult one that you perform oh, magnificently. Thank you. Well, come, Sansoni, I'd like you to meet my wife. She, she's here in the wagon.
2: Delighted, my dear Barastro.
29: It's a privilege I'll not forget, let me assure you.
3: Oh, Gregor.
29: Hello, Anna.
23: Gregor, who is that with
29: you? Oh, it's a gentleman I want you to meet. Anna, this is Rico Sansoni. A great pleasure
2: and a great sorrow. You see, I've been watching you tonight and I hope I could persuade you to become my assistant. But now I learn you're this charming gentleman's wife. Mm -hmm. How fortunate is the marvelous Barastro. (laughs) Marvelous Barastro?
29: Anna, did you hear what he called me? Anna, what's the matter?
23: I have nothing to say.
29: I'm sorry. You see, my wife and I, we we seldom have visitors. I understand perfectly. But I hope
2: that she will like me when she gets to know me better.
29: So, Rico Sansoni entered our lives. In the days which followed, he attached himself ever more closely to us as a lonely man would who seeks friendship of those he likes. But Anna, she would never trust him. Sometimes after he would leave at night, she'd whisper.
13: I don't like him, Gregor. I don't like...
29: Why?
13: I feel something strange from him.
29: And I, I, like a fool, I I would always defend him. I'd I'd remind her of his gay talk and, and how he made us laugh and how interested he was in me and my methods of magic. Oh, I was flattered that that even Rico wanted to learn from me. One night, Anna and I had just finished our dinner. She turned to me. She had a troubled expression on her beautiful face.
13: Gregor, there's something I must tell you.
29: What, my sweet? Are you getting tired of this kind of life,
13: huh? Oh, no, no, Gregor. It's... This afternoon.
29: What about this afternoon? What about it, Anna? Rico. What about Rico?
13: This afternoon Rico came here and talked to me as he always does. Yes? I suspected nothing. But then he took my hand in his and... And asked me if I loved you.
29: He asked you what?
13: If I loved you even more than happiness or life.
29: What did you say?
13: I, I was so frightened, I, I just asked him to leave. I, I don't like him, Gregor.
3: I'm afraid.
29: Again, again, I reassured Anna. After all, what had happened? Nothing. Well, our friendship continued. Weeks passed, the carnival had moved to Hamburg and, and we had taken an apartment in the city. We spent the days together and he was more and more interested in my every word and thought and mood and, and as always, I was flattered by him. You have a funny way of saying
2: beautiful, my friend. Hmm?
29: How is it again? Beautiful. Yes. Yes, that's it. Beautiful. Oh, look, Rico, you were telling me about that.
8: <laughs>
29: beautiful.
8: Oh, I like you, Gregor. I like you very much.
29: Yes, amazing, isn't it? How one can be taken in by flattery. Yet so clever was he. I I never realized the terrible truth of his friendship with me. I was in my tent one afternoon when a warning swept over me. It was all of a sudden, but, but I couldn't mistake it. I, I left the tent and I, I hurried to the apartment. And carefully, I opened the door. Yes, yes, there was Rico. Standing with his arms around my wife. Her face raised to his lips. She kissed him. And then I heard him talking. It was my voice he was using. My voice, completely mine. At the sound of his voice, a nameless fury seized me. Now I knew... Why he'd been so interested in me? Why he'd spent so many hours with me? He'd learned. He'd learned to perfection how to use my voice. Now, now his words seem to come, come from my own throat. I, I sprang forward, shouting, Rico, R- no, Rico, Anna, Anna,
3: don't, don't touch him. Don't touch him.
2: G. Hall, the attorney, sits at his desk, fascinated by the magician Barastro, as he tells his strange story. Now the attorney leans forward. That is incredible.
3: Yes.
2: You mean this Sansoni had studied your speech and mannerisms so perfectly mm-hmm. that he was able to deceive your yes, wife? Yes, incredible as it may seem. Well, uh,
3: uh, go on,
29: go on. I hardly remember rushing across the room, or all I could think of was... ...was to kill this man, to kill him. <laughs> Anna screamed and I screamed, and he and I, we struggled across the room... ...over, over chairs and, and tables against the walls and the window. I, I saw him through my rage. Every feature had changed. He was Barastro. There were two of us. Yes, two. Barastro, screaming, screaming instead of fighting... Then he had me by the throat. His strength was terrifying. The breath began to leave my body as, as this horrible fiend changed and it became Rico Sansoni again. Barastro, have mercy, man.
19: Grego, Grego, you're killing me. <laughs> I am dying.
29: Yes, uh, he was pretending it was I who was killing him. He would kill me and,
0: and live with Anna
29: Barastro. His cruel eyes burned into mine, and he leaned close to my ear and whispered, You fool. I'll kill you for her. It was then. It was then that I cried with all my might. Anna! Anna! And then, then suddenly, a a gray darkness flooded over me. (laughs) I don't know how much time had gone by when I opened my eyes. I, I looked around the room. It was gone. Then I saw Anna. She was crouched against the wall. I, I tried to whisper. Anna. Anna. I, I began to to drag myself uh, across the floor to her. When I got to her side, I tried to reach for her hand. She pulled it away and screamed. Then I realized her terror. Who was in the room with her? Was it Riku? Was it her husband? How could she know? I pleaded with her. I assured her again and again that Riku had gone, but but she remained against the wall. Her, Her hand held in her teeth and staring, staring into the terrible dark around her Frantically, I I searched my mind for words, words to tell her it it, it was really I. Look, look Anna, listen. Look, remember, Anna, remember our walk through the hills, first time. Huh? See, remember, Anna, your trees. Remember them? one you called lullaby, and the one whose branches pointed to the sky. You called it prayer. See? See, Anna. It is, isn't I. Listen, listen carefully. Look. Look, remember I read your future? It's the first time we met. I said, uh, the spirits promise you happiness, and your hands will touch beautiful things. Love and great happiness await you, and you said. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you.
3: Gregor. Yes
29: Rico had disappeared, but from that day on, I had only one thought, to God against the day I, I knew must come. traveled all over Europe, and, and she learned to smile and be happy again, and, and at times I felt her fears had left her.
20: Vienna is such a lovely city, Gregor. I knew it would be
13: like this in the spring.
3: Gregor,
13: these mountains, they're like the ones near my village. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I can almost see them.
20: Wonderful to be home, Gregor. Yes. yes. To walk in our hills and over the old paths again.
29: While well, at last I felt it was safe to get a job in a cabaret, I had to get a job. Our, our savings were almost gone, and I had only worked there two weeks when, when I felt that same terrible warning sweep over me again choked and dizzy, I, I ran to our cottage. Yes. Yes, Rico was back. I stood there, motionless, silent, listening.
3: <laughs>
29: I heard her laugh like a child. All I knew I I had to kill this devil who would take my wife, my my identity, my my happiness. I am sure if I had been able to think, I would have realized that I shouldn't rush into the room because cause it would kill her. I'm quite sure Rico knew it, but all I could think was I had to kill him. And then, well, Mr. Hall, I, I had a terrifying idea. What if Rico killed me? He'd go on living with her as Barastro, and she'd never know. See, Mr. Howe? Well, I opened the door and walked in. Anna, don't touch him. It's Rico. Well, this, uh is my memory of Anna. She tore at her eyes with her hands, as if to tear away the darkness. As I rushed to her, she she fell. She didn't speak again, and... the next morning she died. Sansoni. I think you understand now, Mr. Hall, why... why I'll kill Rico Sansoni tonight. Now you know why I may need your services to defend me. No, not my life, but at my name and my honor. Good night, Mr. Hall.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I've practiced criminal law for 25 years, and I've heard many strange tales. But that night, I couldn't sleep. The next morning, there was an item in the paper. A train had hit a car in which two magicians were riding. One was killed, his body so badly cut up as to be unidentifiable. The other was in the hospital. I hurried over there, made inquiries, and went to the room. I quickly told the nurse my business, and she led me to the bed.
10: Two burning eyes, all that was left of a face, stared out through a mass of bandages as the nurse leaned over close to him. Your attorney,
23: Mr. Hall, is here.
2: uh yes. Well, I. I guess you will not have any need of my services, after all. The police haven't placed a charge against you, huh? have they? Police?
29: <clears throat> Why should be. Uh... It was an accident. Just a bad accident.
18: Well, it, it must have been perfectly done. Uh, you, you
22: know, the only thing I don't understand, how could you have killed him in the accident and not be killed yourself?
29: Well, I... I'm the marvelous blastor, am I not? Or don't you believe me?
5: Again next week at this same time, when the makers of Camel Cigarettes present Mr. Peter Laurie and Mystery in the Air. The artists supporting Mr. Laurie were Henry Morgan, John Brown, Barbara Eiler, Howard Culver, Jane Morgan, and Russell Thorson. This is Michael Roy in Hollywood wishing you all a pleasant good night.
0: A vintage Peter Laurie performance on his own show, Mystery in the Air. The play was called. The Marvelous Barastro, and it came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. That radio play was based on a story by the venerable playwright and screenwriter Ben Hecht, born on this date in 1894. We're about to hear more from Mr. Hecht in his own voice. It's another story that Ben Hecht wrote, adapted for the radio series Suspense and performed in as both narrator and as actor, portraying Ben Hecht. A few weeks ago, we played a little bit of the legendary actor John Barrymore performing a scene from Shakespeare, and I mentioned at the time that Mr. Barrymore's acting style was very much that of a century ago, with its emphasis on diction and a stentorian delivery. Well, in this suspense episode, Frederick March does a wonderfully accurate parody of that style, so you'll hear a very different Frederick March from the actor we remember from his Oscar-winning roles in The Best Years of Our Lives and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Some real-life old-time actors are mentioned in the show, including Sarah Bernhardt, John Drew, and the woman known as the American Bernhardt, Leslie Carter. What's especially notable about the script is how well Mr. Hecht, primarily a stage and screen author, wrote for the radio. Listen for a climax to this story that uses mostly sound effects. From August 24th in the wartime year of 1944, it's a tale called Actors' Blood from the CBS Network and Suspense.
21: Tonight, Actors Blood, written and told to us by Ben Hecht and starring Frederick March.
3: Suspense.
2: This is the Man in Black, here for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, to raise the curtain on a presentation unique in these weekly half-hours of Suspense. Tonight from Hollywood, Roma Wines bring you a star of the first magnitude, Mr. Frederick March. And in person, one of America's foremost tellers of tales, Mr. Ben Hector of Broadway and Hollywood, who will appear as actor and narrator in a suspense play dealing with the mysterious death and the twisted passions and loyalties of the world behind the footlights. And so with actor's blood and with the performance of Frederick Mott, supported by Ben Hecht, from whom we will hear the narrative in the author's own
21: words. We again hope to keep you in... Suspense!
2: Do you remember Maurice Tillieu? Probably not. Only students of the theater are people old enough to have applauded the heyday of Mrs. Leslie Carter and John Drew and the theatrical dialos of the divine Sarah would be likely to remember. During the years I knew him, I saw him in harness but three times. Once in a revival, once at a benefit, and the third time was the occasion of the anecdote I've set out to relate. By that time, his only claim to fame was the fact that he was the father of Marcia Tillyu. On a summer night in 1927, Marcia made a final exit worthy of the Tillyu tradition. For weeks after it happened, old Tillyer went around like the ancient mariner, holding with his baleful eye and his mournful song whoever crossed upon his path. But after a while, he too seemed to drop out of sight in the wake of his glamorous daughter, and like her, was forgotten. Then late one night, as I was getting ready for bed, the bell to my apartment rang. Ben... I come with a message from the dead. Indeed. Well, come on in and tell me about it. Men, do you believe in ghosts? I've got nothing against them. Good. I have just come from a miserable modern dress caricature of that greatest of the bard's plays, Macbeth. You will scarcely credit what these upstarts have done to Shakespeare's masterpiece.
5: They haven't altered the text, have they?
2: You recall the fourth scene of the third act? Oh, yes. The scene in which Banquo's ghost appears. Just so. In the folio edition of the play, the stage directions clearly read, the ghost of Banquo enters and sits in Macbeth's place. In the foul production which I have just witnessed, the ghost does no such thing. It is an empty chair to which Macbeth shrieks his guilty line. Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me. An invisible ghost, eh? That's not so illogical. But what drama is there in it? How can we feel Macbeth's terror if it's an empty stool at which he shouts? Avalt and quit my sight. Let the earth hide thee. Thy bones are mirrorless. Thy blood is cold. Thou hast no speculation in those eyes which thou dost glare with. The way you read those lines, sir, I have no trouble seeing this ghost. Thank you. Now listen. I am going to produce that scene in modern dress. It's not going to be an ambi production such as the one I witnessed tonight. I am going to give a banquet at my home, and there is going to be a place set at the table for my daughter, Marcia. Marsha. Look, Maurice, I'm very fond of you. Ah, You are wondering why, aren't you, my boy? (laughs) Like Hamlet, I am but mad north-northwest. The empty place at the table will be purely symbolic, I assure you. And no apparitions will appear, not to you and me at any rate. I cannot guarantee what my daughter's murderer will see there. Marsha's murderer will be there? They will all be there. All who loved her, all who hated her. And woe to the hand that shed this costly blood. But if you know who the murderer is, why don't you tell the police? Ah, police? My daughter, sir, would not have wanted so crude and sordid an epilogue to her life story. Like her father before her and my parents before me, she had actor's blood in her veins. She shall be avenged, my friend. But it will be no affair of handcuffs and policemen. I'll not go whining on Marcia's behalf among the cigar butts and cuspidors in some precinct station. No, no, her murderer shall be unmasked at a mighty banquet on Friday next at eight thirty, curtain time, my friend. I'll see you there. Yes, yes, I'll be there. <laughs> Ben Hecht in person as the narrator of his own story. And with Frederick March as star, you have heard the prologue to Actors' Blood, tonight's tale of suspense. And now it is with pleasure that we bring back to our soundstage Mr. Ben Hecht, narrator and author of Actors' Blood, starring Frederick March. Tonight's tale of
21: suspense.
2: It rained on that Friday night, thunder rolled in the sky, and the streets were full of that picnic like confusion which storm brings to the city waiting under the hotel awning for a taxi, I turned over in my mind the strange invitation that had brought me out into this wild and stormy night. I was rather thrilled at the prospect of old you's dinner, for his intention was plain, to assemble a company of suspects in the murder of his daughter, Marcia, and he was obviously going to climax the evening by some formal accusation of guilt. I knew pretty well who the suspects were, and I suppose I was one of them. Alfred O'Shea would be there, of course. Alfred O'Shea. The man who had written Marcia Tillieu's first successful play, and their last. Broadway had its own private joke about the title of the last. It was called Forgotten Lady. It was after the final curtain of the last performance of Forgotten Lady that Alfred O'Shea chose to tell her. Marcia told the story of the time as a
12: joke on herself. Hello, Marcia.
14: Oh, why, darling, you waited for me in my dressing room. Like old times, I'm touched. Really touched.
12: Look, sweetheart, you're off stage now, so cut the burn out. You know why I'm here. I do. All right, I'll say it again. I'll say it for the last time. I want a divorce. I want to marry Rena Kratznov.
14: I want to marry Rena Kratznov. Oh, it's such a bad line. And from such a great playwright. No, dear Alfred. Not for her. It would be too belittling a successor. Can't you see, darling, after all we've been to each other, it's. Why, it's like Pygmalion wanting to trade in his beautiful Galatea for a wooden Indian.
12: And it's no dice, huh?
14: No dice, Alfred. No divorce. Not as long as I live. Now be a darling and help me out of this dress.
12: Okay, Marcia, You've just made your own bargain.
14: <laughs> you can come out from behind that screen now, Father.
2: How did you know I was there?
14: Your asthma, darling. I'm glad you're here. Even if you are a perfectly fiendish old eavesdropper. Here, you can unhelp me since that swine refused to. I
2: warned you against marrying that jackanapes of a playwright, Marsha.
14: Oh, Father. You're saying I told you so. What I really wanted was to weep on your shoulder. Ouch!
2: I'm sorry, sorry. Look here, Marsha. What are you going to do about this career?
14: Now, darling, please don't go into that old routine about my being the last scion of the royal family of the American Theater. I'm nothing but a combination of your name and a playwright who specializes in shallow, brittle female leads that enable me to get applause by simply acting Marcia, myself. Marcia,
2: I won't allow you to speak this way about yourself. You're a great artist. Oh. You've taken your place in the great tradition of the stage beside the immortal figures of Rochelle, Siddons, Bernhardt, and Majeska. Marcia, let O'Shea
22: go. He was never worthy of you. Play Juliet next
2: season. Show them, show them you don't need a fashionable playwright and tailor-made parts to succeed. Show them you have actor's blood.
14: Actor's blood, actor's blood. I'm sick of hearing about it. Just because you and Mother thought it was cute to stick me out there behind the footlights at the age of five because you never had any real life. You didn't see any reason why your daughter should have. I'm supposed to have actors, blood. All right,
2: all right, all right. I'm only thinking of you, Marsha. Only of you. But that O'Shea is a hot-headed Irishman. He came very near to threatening your life when you refused to do as he asked.
14: Good. I wish he would kill me. I'm sick of the whole rotten
3: business. <laughs>
2: Yes, O'Shea was a suspect. He would be at old Tillieu's dinner. He would be seated across the table from the empty chair. And would he see a Banquo's ghost of Marsha Tillieu? But O'Shea would be in a goodly company of suspects. Fritz von Klauber would be there for sure. Fritz von Klauber. Not a man I should have liked to have as an enemy, that. Abnormally sensitive to insult. Von Klauber was possessed also of an impenetrable Prussian stupidity. His first American production was a play called Jubilee for Spring, and Marcia Tilley, who starred in it, was the most sensational flop of the Broadway season. After the first night performance in the 21 Club, Marsha held her own private autopsy on Von Klauber's dead turkey.
14: You see, darlings, Mr. Von Klauber, my esteemed producer, loves his turkey farm so much, he sometimes forgets he's on Broadway.
18: <laughs> <laughs> terrific, Marsha. How about that for my
14: college? No, sure, Walter, anything at all, it's all yours, exclusively. Marsha.
22: Shh. Von Klauber. He's over there, the next table. He's heard every word.
14: Good, let him hear. He's going to hear from me in the morning anyway when I start looking for a new producer.
21: (laughs) Uh. Go ahead, my sweet Marsha. Go ahead, rag me in public. I could kill you for this, do you hear me? I could kill
14: you. Oh, you could, darling. Well, if my beloved husband doesn't do me in as he keeps threatening to do, perhaps I'll ask you to oblige. I may yet be spared the nuisance of doing the job myself. Marcia,
2: I forbid you to talk like this.
14: Sorry, Father. Must be the actor's blood cropping up again.
2: Yes, von Klauber would surely be present to Tilly's ghostly dinner. As I got into the taxi and gave the driver Attilio's address, my mind was still turning upon the terrible question who killed Marsh Attilio? Third on my list of suspects was a character named Maury Stein. Maury Stein. A one time racing tout and small time gangster, Mar- Maury turned his brilliant, if slightly frightening, talent to flesh peddling. That is to say, he was a theatrical agent. Marsha did two shows under his management, both of them flops. It wasn't her fault. There was no belittlement of the name Tillyou. It was still an electric sign, but growing ghostly, slipping still aglow into the side streets of fame. Maury Stein was Marsha Tillieu's last substitute for love.
14: Maury, will you stop staring at that door? Let's get out of here. Oh, Relax. This is a charming room. I like it here.
24: Look, chick, I said let's get out of here. Understand?
14: Perfectly. I understand that Mrs. Maury Stein may come walking in that door. Perhaps she'll put two and two together about us. That'd make you sad, wouldn't it? Because you've signed over all your unscrupulously earned money to your good wife. Oh, just in case questions should be asked, you know. And if she gets any ideas, she may cut you off without a dime. And then you... Yep. <laughs> you know, I've half a mind. Did to... you hear what I
2: said? Shut up. You ever so much as that. Uh, take up your coat. We're
24: gone.
14: Maury, you are a worm. A despicable, slimy
2: little worm. Sister, nobody talks to Murray Stein like that and gets away with it, see? Nobody. There was to be one more opening night in Marsha Tilleyou's career. And ironically enough, the three men she had caused to fear most of all her enemies were doing the honors. O'Shea had written it, Von Klauber was the producer, and Maury Stein had put up the money. I arrived backstage at the Broadhurst at twenty to find the three of them in hysterics. Ten minutes to curtain time and no Marsha. I found old Tillio sitting in her dressing room, nursing a sprained ankle and very upset. And then I'm worried... For the first time, I'm really worried about Marsha. What's the matter? I, I don't know. We've been calling her hotel since 6 o'clock. She refuses to answer the phone. Ben, go over there. You're the only one she'll to. No telly who has ever missed a performance, and Marsha of all people must not be the first. It's those villains out there who've done this, spreading insidious poison like Iago, tearing at her heart with their fangs until she's afraid to go on. Go, Ben. Try to reason with her.
5: Okay, Pop. I'll do my best to bring her back.
2: I trotted the three blocks to Marge's hotel. The clerk at the desk met me with a dead pan. Not Mr. Heck, Miss Tilly, who hasn't come down yet. No key in her box. I took the elevator up. I turned left and walked down the corridor. I knocked on the door. No answer. Tried the knob. Door opened. And then it all added up. Yes, it added up. To a gaudy room in shambles. mirror smashed. Perfume bottles shattered, the portrait of Marcia is Pirette cut to ribbons, and finally it added up to Marcia herself, cold and white and terribly beautiful, lying there on the bed with three round bullet holes in a neat triangle just over the heart. There was no mistaking it. Marcia Tilley was dead, murdered. was the sum total of the addition I was doing in my head as I rode in a taxi the 20 blocks from my hotel to old Tilio's house on West 84th Street. Maybe I added it up wrong, but I felt sure I hadn't. I was even more certain when I saw old Tillio standing there at the head of the table to greet the guests he had assembled on the promise of revealing the identity of Marsh's murderer. Promptly at 8.30, he made his entrance. He brought a stranger into the room with him. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, all of you, for waiting so patiently. I trust you found your mutual company not too tiresome. I should like to introduce my guest
1: of honor. May I present Mr. Carl Schuttler of the uh, district attorney's office. Now, if, if you will all be seated, the place cards are plainly marked. Please, please do not
21: disarrange
3: them. (laughs) Thank
21: you, Alfred. I see one short. And who may I ask is that empty blaze for? Banquo's
1: ghost? That, my dear Mr. Van Glauber, is for a beloved guest known to all of you. Beloved guest, huh?
10: Let's see now. (laughs) Well, well, hey, listen to this. This seat has indeed been reserved for one uh, known to all of us.
14: Who is it?
10: It's been reserved for Marcia Tillyo. A...
2: Oh,
14: please, I'd like to change my place. <laughs>
10: down, me
2: know. Me Marcia was never... She was too sensible to play ghosts. <laughs> I... I am an old actor. With the audience seated and the curtain up, I find it hard to wait. Art is long, but time is fleeting. And there is one who bids me speak. Love, hear thou. How desolate the heart is ever calling, ever unanswered, and the dark rain falling, then as now. You are wondering if I really believe my daughter Marcia is present in this galaxy of her friends. It may be the wandering wits of an old man. But I see her sitting there, tragic and beautiful. About her the sound of rain and of sweet bells jangling out of tune. Forgive me. You, you have not come here tonight to hear a doting father spread his miseries before you. But for a son of business, which from your courtesy your attentiveness, I feel sure you have guessed. Mr. Schutler asked me to tell him this matter privately, but I refused. For you are all her friends,
1: her honorable friends, and I wanted you present.
3: Who killed my daughter?
21: Who took her life? Well, there, there's the question. I have the answer. Yes, Mr. Schutler, the murderer is here. He sits here among us now at my table. Shall I lock the door now, Mr. Tillius Yes, he he just lock, lock the, door? the door. Lock it tight. Leave no chance for escape. Ha ha! It's too late now.
2: No power in heaven or earth can save him. All right, Mr. Tillew, the door's locked. My friends, is this not like a plane?
21: Your face is waiting for the name, the name of Iscariot, the Judas. <coughs> that's it, that's it. Clear your throat, spit it, worm. Look about you. Who knows? The villain may be right beside
2: you. And who knows but that you may be his next victim? Uh, Mr. Tilly? I, who... I keep my promise, Mr. Shukla. I have the proof, Solomon, enough to send the murderer from this table to the gallows the one who killed marsha is looking at me now Ah, the blood on his hands
21: the terror in his eyes i'll tell you his name his name is
3: go 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 go
22: me. Oh
19: my God! Oh my God!
22: Gillya, uh,
3: where are you? He's killing me! He's killing! He's uh ah! Uh, uh. <coughs>
10: A dagger-handled
2: protruded from old Tillyu's crimson shirt front. His eyes were closed. We carried him into the next room and waited outside while the doctor worked over him.
4: Uh, Mr. Hecht?
2: I'm Ben Heck, doctor. Oh. Will you come in, please? He's asking for you. A... Doctor, is he, uh... The knife from... pierced the heart. He hasn't much longer. Uh,
22: uh Ben... Ben, is that, is that you, Ben? Yes, it's me. Who did it? Uh, here, lean over so I can see your face. Uh,
2: there, satisfied? Let me file in my pocket. Wait, wait. What is that? Why, it's a letter. I must have stuck it into the pocket of this suit the last time I wore it. Wait, wait, what's in that letter, Ben? Why, I don't know. I haven't even opened it. Well, that, that's Marshall's handwriting. A letter from the dead. Open it, Ben. Read it to me. Look, you mustn't excite yourself, I. When when was that letter mailed? It's a postmarked the tenth. Must have been a day before. Just read, she... read the letter, Ben. All right. What what does it say, Ben? Read it. Ah, uh, well, it says, um, "Dear Ben, this is to remind you of the opening at the Broadhurst tonight. I uh, hope you will be there because." Um, I sincerely believe that this is one of the greatest roles I have ever played. And and I'm so anxious to make good in it because of Father's faith in me. She, she cared. She really cared. What I thought. Sure she did. She'd have been proud of your performance in there this evening, too, Pop. You were great. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Oh. Doctor! Doctor! Oh, yes, yes, what? Oh. Well, that's that. He was quite an actor in his day, wasn't he? Yes. Quite an actor. How How is he, he, how's he, he doing? Oh, he, what did he say? Did he say anything yet? He's dead. I've got a letter let here that will explain everything. It's a pity I didn't find it sooner. I haven't had this dinner suit on since the night of Marsh's opening fell out of my pocket when I leaned over the bed in there. It was written by Marsha Tillyu, the day she died. Marsha, she's It says, Ben, I'm bored, tired, hurt, sick, full of nasty things. I'd stay a while longer, but death seems easier and simpler than life. What are a few pills, more or less, to one who has swallowed so much? Take care of father. He liked you the best for the last time, Marsha. Suicide. It's a suicide note. But what about the bullets? Can't you guess? The old man worshipped her. She was his star. But stars don't commit suicide. Only failures do that. So he fired three bullets into her dead body, slashed the painting, and wrecked the place to make it look like a crime of passion. He must have been mad as a hatter. No, he was sane. I think he really saw her as murdered by all of us her so-called friends who had let her down when she needed them most. Do you realize that that old barnstormer was playing his death scene from the moment he came into this room tonight? He'd rehearsed it in his bedroom for days, sharpening away at Macbeth's old toadstabber. He had his lines down pat. He staged his elaborate set scene this evening and killed himself in such a way that we'd all be raked over the coals, not only for Marsh's murder, but for his own as well. Well, it was a lovely piece of old-fashioned mining, but as fruitless of drama as I ever had the misfortune to witness. You're right, O'Shea. Plot was full of holes. We could have helped him a lot with the construction, but it was a great last night... And so closes Actors' Blood, written and narrated by Ben Hecht and starring Frederick March. Tonight's study in Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by
12: William Spear. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: Actors' Blood, a Ben Hecht story, script, and performance, along with Frederick March, from Suspense in the summer of 1944. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. Day After Tomorrow marks the anniversary of one of the high points in American music, the first of two recording sessions for the Miles Davis album, Kind of Blue. From that album, with Mr. Davis's trumpet, the bassist Paul Chambers, drummer Jimmy Cobb, Pianist Bill Evans and tenor saxophonist John Coltrane, recorded March 2nd, 1959. It's the Miles Davis Bill Evans composition, Blue in Green. For co producer Jill Harold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.